You're listening to I'll Have What She's Podcasting, a film and pop culture podcast hosted by Louise Oliver and Jackie Farmer, two tired feminist millennials giving you opinions you didn't ask for about the content they love. Um, all right, this is a biggie. This one's, this feels, this feels important. <laughs> this feels like one of the most important podcasts of our lives. Yeah, yeah. It's our... Our master, no, this could be our masterpiece. Our masterpiece. <laughs> Ten seconds into recording. Yeah, exactly. This is it. Yeah, just much like the uh, the people who were behind building the Titanic. That was hubris of the highest level. I was, yes, I was uh, indulging in there. So yes, this is the one about Titanic. How do you feel about that, Jackie Farmer? Excited. Mm. Nervous. I'm a bit titillated. <laughs> I'm excited that we're getting this one out of the way early in our podcasting career with I'll Have What She's Podcasting. I feel like it would have just been looming over us if we didn't get it out of the way early. Because as a film and pop culture podcast, there would have to come a time where we would cover Titanic. And I feel like the longer we left it, the bigger that boat became and the bigger that iceberg Mm -hmm. became. And it would have just become a thing. Yeah. Luckily, like. we've we've recognised early on that our rudder is too small to veer as sharply as we would need it to to avoid this for any longer than absolutely necessary. So we're better to turn soon. Absolutely. Or just crash head on in because that's what they should crash have done. Head on in. That's <laughs> what they should have done. That's exactly what should have happened. Um, do you remember seeing this in the cinema? Yes. I went to see it with my uncle, my uncle Clark, my brother, and two of my cousins. And I actually looked at the year and I think me and my cousin Jamie must have been slightly too young for it. So I think it must have been like the, it was a 12 or a 12A. I don't know if 12As were a thing yet, but we must have got in. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was also at the peak of my Leonardo DiCaprio obsession. Actually, it's, it's exactly what it was. That's the word for it. And I had a lovely time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think someone had ruined the ending for me already. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't actually. This shows how obsessed with Leo I was. I wasn't talking about the ship. All right. Okay. I was going to say, did history ruin the ending no, I, for you? I knew about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I wasn't worried about that at the time. Oh, imagine going um, in and being like, it sinks? Holy what? shit. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. I did see it. And I remember my uncle cried. Remember, we, the lights went up and he had tears rolling down his face. And I think we took, we all took piss out of him. And Of course, um, as you were wanting to do as teens. Not even. I think I was, I was 11. Yeah, 97, yeah. That's a good point. You wouldn't even have um, arrived at teenager yeah, so preteen? Does 11 count as preteen? Preteen? Tween? Are you a tween yet? I'm not sure. I kind of assume the minute you hit double digits, you're sort of in that preteen territory, aren't you? Definitely, you're more susceptible to non-threatening looking pretty boys. So did the Leonardo DiCaprio obsession start with, what did that begin with? Is that what's eating Gilbert Grape? No, that would have been an odd move, I think. Um <laughs> <laughs> it started with Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet because he had the chops. I'm sure we'll go into this later, but like Leonardo was the perfect thinking girl's crush because he was physically beautiful, but he also had like proper acting chops. He he was, he was legitimate. Leonardo DiCaprio was the late '90s what Timmy Chalamet is to the '20s. Okay, yeah, okay. that's not my thesis, but it could be a thesis. <laughs> it could be a thesis. Yeah, <laughs> when is was... one of my theses. 
<laughs> one of my many, many theses. But when was Romeo and Juliet? 96? Okay, yeah. That, yeah, that tracks. And at some point in those years, and maybe in a year or so after that, I was just a fiend. I got the magazines. I watched all of his films, including really inappropriately The Basketball Diaries, over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. How about you? Did you see it in cinema? I did see it in the cinema. I remember going with a bunch of friends and um and yeah, having the, the standard reaction which is to cry and be very taken in by the love story and and yeah, be a little bit young for some of the scenes perhaps. Um there was definitely an awakening. Something that something happened with Titanic and, and, and young preteen girls who saw it when it came out that an awakening of sorts. Um mm-hmm. although I, what I will say is that I never really got the Leo thing, I have to be honest. He didn't get under my skin, I think, the way he did with the rest of the preteen female population. And I don't know what that is. That's not me saying like I'm too cool for Leo or whatever. I don't I, I it might also just be something to do with the fact that I was a bit a very childlike preteen like I like we've discussed before I was a bit of a late bloomer so I don't know if I was just a bit like oh well what's happening oh he's a nice boy like I don't I don't know if like yeah. I just wasn't quite ready yet did you have a first celebrity love um yes and now that you've asked me this question it's an interesting analysis in terms of the timing of this because the answer to that question is yes and it's Michael J Fox I had a huge crush on Michael J Fox which is a sort of an odd thing because now when seeing it out loud I'm like well the timing of that is all off so I suppose it, it mm-hmm. must depend on when I saw Back to the Future which I cannot remember when I was so would that have been before or after I must have seen I must have seen Back to the Future before Titanic yeah no, I, I do think did. that that's a thing I think if you have if you already have a celebrity crush and this is purely I'm only I'm speaking for girls who fancy boys because I don't know what anyone else does mm-hmm. but I remember feeling like quite a fierce loyalty to Leo So while there may have been other celebrities that people had crushes on, I'm trying to think at the time who that even might have been. It was kind of like if you were like Team Jacob or Team Edwards or Team Harry or Team Zane, like you had your loyalties and you really in some way thought that they would be rewarded at some point, even though you had no idea what you wanted that to look like. Or yeah, Who were Leo's contemporaries? Like if you weren't a Leo girl, who was the other option or one of the other options? I'm trying to think who the heartthrobs in the late 90s were. I know, I think it was probably a bit too late for Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Devin Sawa. I think Tobey Maguire was around at that time. He was. Yeah. Does, does he count as a heartthrob? Does he technically count? Ethan um, Hawke, would he have been one? Freddie Prince Jr.? Yeah, that lot. Yeah, maybe a, maybe a, maybe a James Vanderbeek. Joshua Jackson. I do like a Joshua Jackson. I would definitely I like be a Pacey over a Dawson. I would definitely Pacey over a Dawson. <laughs> okay, tangent. We should do time. A Dawson's Creek episode one time. <laughs> we should. <laughs> But that is not. We should really be. We should really be watching our we tangent. Should. God Almighty, we've got a long road ahead. Yeah. So we're covering Titanic. Yeah. What's okay, it about, so, Louise? Okay. So Titanic is about class struggles on a boat. That's Very it. succinct. <laughs> That's what it is. It's class struggles on a boat, and that will get unpacked as we go along in great detail. But we struggled with this the last time. I'm being as succinct as possible this time. Class struggles on a boat. Okay. And now we discuss. <laughs> Excellent. And I would say there's actually no way to avoid any spoilers in this if for some reason you've just arrived on the planet and you haven't seen Titanic. Or actually, even if you haven't seen it recently, I would go and watch it. 
Yeah, because that was your experience actually a little bit. You hadn't seen it in a long time before you watched it for today's episode, yeah. is that right? And are you still recovering? Yeah, I am. I was in my Leo phase and I watched it and I had the soundtrack, I had the tape, I think it was probably a VHS, and I watched it a lot. I watched this, Man in Iron Mask, Romeo and Juliet, and The Basketball Diaries, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, a lot. And... I think, and then there came a point when I didn't do that anymore, so I haven't really mm. watched any of them since, and I thought, you know, you know, I've seen that, I don't need to see it again. In some way, I actually had it in my head as a bit of a guilty pleasure, or almost like, thought it was a bit of a crap film, but it's not at all. And then I rewatched it last week for this, and it was, it blew me away. Yes, that's a really interesting point, because in my bits and bobs of research ahead of the episode, I came across this little nugget around that idea of this film being a guilty pleasure because it was so popular and it remains to this day a record-breaking movie in terms of its success it was the first mm-hmm. movie I think ever to gross in the billions in terms of profit and then mm-hmm. and then continue to make money you know people loved it and it, and it swept the academy awards I think it is still up there in terms of holding the highest number of wins. And then there was this thing about people then turning on it because I think because people do this, they, you know, they take something that is universally loved and mm-hmm. people have, you know, a unanimous positive response to in some capacity and they need to hate it. And yes, and there was this thing of this, what it represented historically, also the fact that it was Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet playing this love story. It became this thing that it was almost embarrassing to say that you liked to the point that empire magazine retracted its original five-star review of the movie and made a four-star review because they even succumbed to the idea that it should be a guilty pleasure but they have since reneged that again and reinstate officially reinstated their original five-star review because they basically came to their senses and went wait a minute hang on yes this is yeah shut up this is an objectively well-made movie like whichever Mm -hmm. way you want to interpret it based on personal taste is one thing that's fine but from a completely objective point of view in terms of cinema it's a really well-made movie and um, it's great yeah and you know you can take or leave the love story if that's your bag fine i thought i was you're an idiot yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) if you're a soulless monster and i just thought that was really interesting because i was like even empire magazine was swept up in that like to the point that they have since reinstated their original review and i thought that was I thought that was a fascinating, like, little, that thing in itself uh, sort of basically sums up human psychology in some ways in terms of how we we, um, respond to things. So, yes, I think, full disclosure for our listeners, Jackie obviously knows this already, I went down, we're recording this um, May 2021, so a year on from the original COVID locking us down in our houses, but this time last year, in that first wave of lockdown and quarantine, I went through a weird titanic rabbit hole miniature obsession where I watched the movie again and then I started like watching all the documentaries and I read A Night to Remember (laughs) I don't know what happened but like for two months I just got completely obsessed with it and then it went away and a year later here we are (laughs) recording this podcast and then did you have a period where you thought the Titanic was stupid and then you did you do like the same loop but just faster I did not because I uh, I am fortunately I have emotional intelligence I just got over the initial obsession. I got out of my Titanic <laughs> rabbit hole. But yeah, it's it's um it's a movie that captures on so many levels the enduring fascination with Titanic, uh, mm-hmm. the the actual historical moment, the the disaster and the loss of human life, etc. Again, which I think we're we're going to get into because we cannot because James Cameron makes it 
with such a unbelievable like passion and love for the source material like that's so apparent in the making mm-hmm. of the movie so yes that's the yes. TED talk the first of many that will happen first of many this is probably going to be quite a long episode we do edit but <laughs> I think we have a lot to say we have more notes like looking at our notes we have about 20 lines more notes than we had for Return of the Jedi which has to date been our longest episode <laughs> <laughs> we will try our it's best. It's a long film. It really is it? a long film. Um, okay, so what, what what do you reckon? What have, have you any succinct synopses or themes or dissertation topics you'd like to open with? I had also workshop just a, a short one. So my very short but not as short as your synopsis is that a frustrated young aristocrat and a penniless but charming artist board a doomed ship with sexy and tragic results. I'm sold. If I was the executive producer in this pitch meeting, I'd be I'd be rubber stamping that right now. Yeah, um, and also to note, because uh, we do always link from our previous episode, and the link between our episode seven first wives club in this one is the beautiful Victor Garber, who was the worst one in the worst in the first wives club, but is one of the nicest people on this one. He's the best one on the boat, and it's the it's the enduring effect of his performances, uh, Mr. Andrews, in this movie, that made me, as I pointed out in the last one, not want to see him as a villain in any way because I love him, yeah. as Mr. Andrews. And I did have a dissertation topic or a theme or a thesis, whatever you like to call it, and mine is that the attitudes of Caledon Hockley. Mr. Esme and various members of the Titanic upper class display how people of a certain level of privilege are impossible to persuade that something bad can happen to them, even when they break clearly stated rules of law or nature. And this is often because they are correct. Beautiful. So well done. Uh, My dissertation topic for this episode is... The sinking of the Titanic is both literally and symbolically the death of the excess and hubris of the Edwardian era. It also marks the end of an era of wealth so vast and distinct from the working class. Before the sinking was the last time in a way society was at relative peace. The world has been at war ever since. I will expand on that as we go. Excellent. I shall also expand on mine. Wow. This is very exciting. Look at us go. Can you tell we were really into this? <laughs> Perhaps a little bit too much. But it was like, I just kept thinking all the way through, as much as there's so much to love about it as a movie, romance and sexy stuff and beautiful costumes and action and adventure, it does make a lot of really interesting comments about class, about society, about wealth, about patriarchy. But what's even more interesting to me is that I, I don't think it's possible to tell the story of, of the Titanic without those things. Mm-hmm. It, it's very existence as a disaster and a moment in history is all of those things, is, is representative of all of those things. And I was so aware of that as I was watching the movie again, maybe because <laughs> I had this I had this hat on while I was watching. I don't know, but I'm fairly certain James Cameron has said at points that he was acutely aware of all of this. Well, obviously he was when he was writing it, but it's really, it's just one of the other things that makes it such a great movie. Yeah, um, that is interesting. And I think that we will find probably that our dissertations have overlaps in that oh, case, sure. because in my mind was relating it to things such as climate change and indeed the COVID pandemic when you look at not so much well in one way how it it's played out or it's playing out in wealthy western countries alone where some people don't have to obey all the rules because they can take the tests and take their jets and go to an island mm-hmm. but then also when you when now we're in vaccine times and we're looking at what's going on in India and yeah. this idea that well we're okay and it's it feels very that yeah 
And so the Titanic sank in 1912, and then World War I happened... 1914, yeah. So the Titanic sinking is a, a literal full stop on the end of an era of peace into a, an era of pretty much for the next, like, several generations of war. And there's also something about we're not long off the back of the Industrial Revolution taking place. Mm. And off the back of that, we get for the first time a middle class. Because before that, mm. wealth was this... Like, or the extreme amounts of wealth of certain types of people was inherited. So the aristocracy and extremely wealthy people are the billionaires of that age. That was um, wealth that spanned back generation after generation, and the distinction between the poor and the wealthy was so vast. So uh, when once we had, once we had a middle class, that that gap was closed a little bit. So the sinking of the Titanic had the last of those sorts of people on it, uh, and I think the majority of them got off of it because obviously the class divide meant that those people were the people at first in the lifeboats. So the majority of them got off the boat. Who was it that stayed? Was it Astor? I think it was Astor. Let me just. Mr. Andrews stayed. Mr. Andrews did stay, but I think it was of all of the sort of extremely wealthy people, like the Guggenheims, the Astors. There was one. No, it wasn't. It wasn't John Jacob Astor. He didn't stay. Is it the guy that, when the ship's sinking, he just comes down in his best and asks for a brandy? It is him. Yes. Yeah, because the the Strausses. Elsa they were the people that owned Macy's, weren't they? They were the people that owned Macy's. Yeah, they stayed on the boat. They died, and oh, it's going to really annoy me. Sorry. Um, is this the last time there were people that were that much richer or is it just the last time they travelled with poor people no it wasn't the last time that there was that level of wealth it was sort of just the last time that that level of wealth was so distinct from poor people because of of people being able to make money through industry Mm. so people who didn't inherit wealth they could be captains of industry kind of like Cal, Cal's a mill owner so he's worked his way up into that world through industry so it was uh found it it was Guggenheim it was Benjamin Guggenheim he's the one that um stayed saying he was prepared to go down as a gentleman right do we Uh, think Cal worked his way up I'm just guessing based on the fact he's referred to as a mill owner because I had I was like trying to figure out what Bill Paxton's ownership of the heart of the ocean diamond was so I was trying to figure out it's like why do you think if you find it it's yours um, other than just uh, the obvious finders, keepers, losers, weepers rule. But um, it was to do with the filing of an insurance claim mm-hmm. by, I think, Nathaniel Hockley, who was Cal's father, who had bought it. Yes. And when the ship went... so And the reason they knew they thought it was on the ship is because he filed the claim in secret a week after the ship sank. So Which I had taken that to mean that Cal was old money. And then also because... They're so snobby about new money. No, he's he is an heir. He is an heir to a fortune, but it's the it's a Pittsburgh steel fortune. So he's an heir to a steel magnet. So technically he is, yeah, he's technically more akin to them than say your your Molly Browns. Like he's not new right. money technically, but on my thesis that I'm trying to argue is it's the difference between new money and, and old and old money, if you like, is stretched a little bit further in this argument, in the sense that prior to the Industrial Revolution, in terms of like people being able to make money off being business owners or working their way up through industry the divide was greater in terms of the wealthy and the poor, in terms of like what that means in terms of class and society. Because I think uh, Molly's money comes from somebody striking gold. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was something like that. Her husband struck gold. What is the definition of new money, just out of curiosity? 
Yeah, the term new money or nouveau riche usually, is usually used in a derogatory way to describe those whose wealth has been acquired within their own generation rather than by a familial inheritance. Sociologically, nouveau riche refers to the person who previously belonged to a lower social class and economic stratum. Okay. So like a Harry Styles as opposed to Eliza Minnelli. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or a Cyrus. Yes. So I suppose Cal, by the definition of, of those moving around on the Titanic, he's... I don't see. I wouldn't class him as old money. If if he's heir to a steel fortune, I would say he's not brand spanking new money, but he's not like old world money either. I guess for me, the distinction they made in the film was that Molly Brown is new money enough to remember what it's like to not have money. Yeah, yes, which exactly. is why she has more empathy for what's happening to people. Yeah, she remembers being poor. Yeah, whereas Cal has never been poor. His dad maybe had, or maybe his dad's dad. Could remember being poor again this is pure speculation i don't know how long cal's family i believe they are fictional yeah <laughs> yeah i believe that they are fictional but it is an interesting thing to sort of look at because there's a lot of people on this boat who are not fictional like the guggenheims let's find out a little bit about benjamin guggenheim he is the fifth of seven sons of the wealthy mining magnate meyer guggenheim 1828 to 1905 so he is, yeah, he's heir to a fortune as well. God, yeah, they were, yeah, they had a lot of money. <laughs> I found an article called Eight Important Characters in Titanic Who Existed in Real Life. Molly Brown ran for the US Senate, apparently. Did she? Yeah, I don't think she won. The captain was real, Captain Smith. Mm-hmm. Joseph Bruce Ismay, managing director of the White Star Line. Uh, Mr. Thomas Andrews. Yep. British businessman and shipbuilder who was responsible for the plans and construction. William Murdoch, well, come on to him. <laughs> and Mr. Astor, John Jacob Astor IV, who was a businessman, real estate developer and Lieutenant Colonel in the Spanish-American War. He stayed on the ship. He did. Maybe it's split pretty evenly in terms of the rich folks who stayed on the ship and who actually got off. Yeah, there was also Archibald Gracie IV was on it, who was another real estate investor, writer and soldier. Um, and he's the one you'd recognise his face. He's got that wee twiddly moustache and he's quite yeah. grey, but he's, I think he's the one when Jack and Rose are at the fancy dinner, I think she's the one that points to him and his wife, who's Rose's age, 17, and is in a delicate condition, meaning she's pregnant. And I think it might also be him that says to Cal, so he makes a remark about Rose and how beautiful she is. No, that, no, that's John Jacob Astor. Oh, is it Astor? John Jacob Astor is the handsome one who makes the comment of, well done, Cal, she's remarkable or whatever he says. Yeah, okay. All right, so um, they're just all disgusting. Well, I mean, yeah, for the most part. Colonel Archibald Gracie, he's actually quite charming. Yeah, you're not disgusting for saying that Kate Winslow's beautiful. I'm sorry, I'm getting really reactionary for this early <laughs> on in the podcast. <laughs> no, no, like, it's, yeah, he's, he's being very patriarchal. He's, like, referring to, he's congratulating Cal as if Kate Winslow Winslet surprise or a piece of something that he's bought like yeah Position, yeah which is a theme of the film yes for 100%. sure about her marketability as yes, a bride absolutely. Um, and the entitlement that Cal feels he has for her affection mm-hmm. and loyalty yeah Colonel Archibald Gracie he's a wee bit nicer he's the one who's like yeah yeah 
for my favorite character. So he's got a twiddly mustache as well. And he's right. the one later on in the movie when Rose and Jack are running around and they're looking for more boats and they run into him and can't remember what they ask him. Like, are there any more boats being loaded? And he says, yes, yes, this way, I'll show you. I'll lead you. And they just run away from him oh, okay. and I always feel really sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry, sorry, Gracie. He's played by Bernard Fox. He plays exactly the same character in The Mummy. Uh, yeah, looking at his face, he can, he can be any anything other than yeah, he, kindly out of touch rich man. He plays Captain Winston Havelock in The Mummy, which is the guy who flies the plane for them into Hamanaptra. And he's a sort of rosy-cheeked, uh, handlebar moustache, like, pip, pip, tell hair, but he's also permanently <laughs> drunk. So right. he plays exactly the same character. Good. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, I think it must have been really interesting for the actors, because, again, this movie is so phenomenally well cast. It must have been really interesting to play someone who actually existed, particularly the ones who are a bit more contentious, like your Ismay's, mm-hmm. because he had such a controversial... Well, he lived when he probably shouldn't have, or that's what people thought anyway. People thought he shouldn't have. People thought he should have absolutely gone down with the ship. Yeah, I suppose there's that idea about if it's your fault, you're the last on to, well, while children are dying below deck in their beds. Yeah. You should be taking more risks with yourself. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, Jonathan Hyde who plays Bruce Esme, who is amazing. He, he, I think he does a phenomenal job. I think he does this phenomenal job of presenting a sort of a human story and a human experience of that arc, that going from very, very arrogant to that moment where he climbs aboard the lifeboat and he looks straight ahead and you get that shot over the over his shoulder and you mm-hmm. see the one of the first officers, I can't remember which one it is, who's saying lower the boats and you see the way he's looking at him. It's Murdoch. Is it Murdoch? Yeah. It's Murdoch, yeah. It's brilliant. And Mur- Murdoch, who also quite controversially portrayed in this movie, is that right? Yes, yes. That was, seems to be the one where the people who are contentious in the film were contentious in real life, whereas Murdoch is quite character assassinated in the film because he, in a bit of a panic to keep people at bay from the lifeboats, shoots charming Irish Tommy and then turns the gun on himself and commits suicide. Yeah. And that isn't actually what happened. That was it. So William Murdoch was a real person, Scottish, and I believe his family objected. I remember it being a news story at the time. I don't know if it was a news story outside Scotland. Apparently... The family were very upset about this portrayal and it led to an apology from Fox, I think. And then they donated like £5,000 to a school in the area. It's like it's for a memorial a memorial prize, like a school in the area from where Murdoch's family were from, um, okay. which feels a little weak. When you think but, about how much, this is like the third highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, like five grand five feels... <laughs> yeah. Because the thing is, that money is everything. No, but it also shows us that it does help. Absolutely. I mean, James Cameron has apologised on the commentary in the DVD, and he has he's spoken about it before. And I think something he said was that was a very screenwritery choice. It was a choice to create conflict, to create more drama, to put some extra spice, basically, in the situation. Not that, not that I think he really needed it, but 
it was a screenwriter's choice and I think it was just a moment where he forgot that actually if you were going to do that you should have done it with a fictional character there were plenty of other officers that weren't named and like were not he was like the main I guess non-captain official on the boat yeah that you knew and who had a name and had a bit of a storyline but again like re-watching it I think because of that because I remembered that story I thought his portrayal would be a bit more like I don't make him less likable but actually from watching it this isn't to say that he shouldn't have been defended by his family because he absolutely should have particularly because this didn't happen and it's you're right it should have been given to a, yeah, make, another yeah make a character person. up <laughs> yeah. yeah do it with the other guy who's helping people into boats that we don't know who his name is he has other scenes for instance when he throws Cal's money back at him yeah being like you're not, I'm not putting you on a boat and also it is him that is doing that kind of flappy hand action to lower the boats and clocks Isme and stops mm-hmm. and gives him a real dirty look yeah and it's so weird oh I see yeah I just got yeah. goosebumps <laughs> like it is it's such, very good yeah it's, watching it and, and and the scene where he shoots Tommy and then commits suicide is again it should have been given to someone else but it didn't make me think oh that's a bad guy there are so many ways that the people in this film realize that they are absolutely fucked yeah at one point and that was his and, and think, it should have been given to someone else but it yeah. was still a good reaction to show somebody having because people don't always do the perfect thing this is why i say it's a screenwriter's choice because there's that arc that character's arc as someone who's not the lead protagonist whose point of view is not propelling us through the film but their actions and the way that they move in the film tells us something more widely about our dissertation topics which is the class thing it's and the way that people behave in certain circumstances that arc of like going from accepting Cal's bribe to throwing his money back and having a line that your money can't save you any more than it can save me which is basically that's our thesis isn't it and shooting himself not because he'd rather die at his own hands than freeze to death in water he shoots himself because he realizes what he's done he shot another desperate human in a desperate situation yeah and he made that choice he chose to take that person's life away rather than giving them a chance Mm-hmm. And it's from a screenwriting and conflict point of view, that all works. That does track. It's just when you're dealing with something like this, which is like Give it actually, to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And these are these are all people that, that that this all this happened. This actually happened. And it's it becomes a trickier thing to go, well, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a creative decision for drama purposes about somebody who actually had to go through this. So yeah. it totally works, but also doesn't. Yeah. Because you can also almost like conjecture a little bit the fact that this is this happens obviously after he's thrown Cal's money back in his face and said your money can't save you any more than it can save me so he in a sense has already accepted that he's not getting out of this alive yeah so his attitude at that point I guess is like well I'm just gonna get as many people to safety as I can and once he's lost the ability or the self-control or the presence of mind to be doing that effectively and he starts to be part of the problem yeah that's when he commits suicide which is very sad Um, it's extremely sad and extremely well played by Ewan Stewart Um, he's a Scottish actor he's a Scottish actor yeah he's not known for a huge a lot not a huge amount actually no this is kind of it this is the thing I mean he's been he's been a working actor he's been jobbing and things pretty consistently in tv and film he's he's dead familiar but I suppose because we're Scottish and we always be like that guy's Scottish that guy's Scottish there's one (laughs) (laughs) uh well there's a couple of Scots in this uh Ron Donaghy's in this he plays um the master of arms and he's what would you know Ron for well he's he's um Daniel Portman's dad (laughs) 
uh, Dan Portman plays Pod, or what's his name in Game of, Game of Thrones. I gotcha. Um, yeah. So yeah, Ron Donaghy is the master at arms in this. He's the one that thinks the drawings of Rose are really quite good. She's He's a dish. Wrong. She is a total dish. And who does he play in Game of Thrones? Roderick Castle. Yeah, I think he dies kind of early in Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched Game of Thrones yet. Where have you been? Oh, he's a master at arms at Winterfell, so he must be. Oh, this is his thing. He plays a master. He plays a master he's at arms. Typecast as a master at arms. Yeah. <laughs> he's the go to guy. Anyway. Off, off we go on another tangent. There's so much to talk about. I don't know if there's much to say about the modern day element of the film. Yeah. Just, it was nice to see the late great Bill Paxton. Ah, um, uh, yes. And the late great Gloria Stewart. Oh, she's so good, isn't she? Yeah. Now, did she get any she awards? She was nominated. She was nominated she was for nominated. Best Supporting Actress, but I don't think she won. Because Kate Winslet was nominated as well. And quite rightly so. Oh, Kate Winslet is just so absolutely breathtaking in this movie. She's brilliant. That shot at the top where she comes out of the car and she lifts her head and we see her face for the first time, it's just like, oh, you are just breathtaking, aren't you? And I remember as well, like, I know we, we always talk have like a little bit of a chat about body image in this just because of our personalities. We quite often will talk about how that was like heroin chic time. I don't know if it's okay to say that anymore, but that was what it was called. It's been like super, super skinny size zero time. Mm-hmm. And I just remember her not being. Yes, she's not, but she's also really very... Let's say she's anywhere close to... <laughs> Anywhere close to plus size or regular. No. But having said that, she has talked at length about how, because she was just rocketed into major, major stardom because of this movie, she has talked a lot about how she wasn't that. She didn't adhere to the the, aesthetic, the required aesthetic of the time and also was not prepared to. There was a lot of stuff in the tabloids about how curvy, in inverted commas, she was. And, and she didn't really play the game. In fact, I think she kind of actively avoided it and, and removed herself from a lot of that for a period of time after this movie. Good for her as well, considering she wasn't... I, mean, I don't think she was 17 like Rose, but she wasn't... I think she was, she was 20, 21. I think she was 19. Was she not 19? Really? I think she was. I'm so sure still she was really young. young. Yeah. Really at a time when that kind of thing could just destroy you. I suppose you kind of have a choice of don't engage or you know prepare for war i think she really did just kind of sack it like she didn't want to get caught up in the in the whole hollywood machine she talks about it at length on mark maron's podcast actually about how the ways in which she she actively made a choice to not be part of that and and how that's quite it's that can be a dangerous choice because if you don't play the game in hollywood particularly at, at that time you run the risk of kind of forfeiting your chance to like keep working but fortunately, we still have Kate Winslet because she's magnificent and a wonderful actress. Very much so. Very um, much so, all of these things. She lost her... She was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, but she lost it to Helen Hunt from For As Good As It Gets. And okay. Gloria Stewart lost out to Kim Basinger in LA Conf- Confidential. Interesting. LA Confidential. Yeah. Interesting choices. Not Interesting choices because... Oh, such an enduring performance. I don't know if they were as challenging, but it was. She was also actress in a supporting role. Uh, another nominee was Joan Cusack for In and Out. Oh, which makes me happy. That's great. That is great. She is amazing in that movie. We will absolutely it's have great. to cover In and Out at some point. 
just to give you a little few things to chew over in terms mm-hmm. of casting, Madonna was considered for the role of Rose for a hot second. Did you know that? I did not know that. How old would Madonna have been? No, she would have been way too old for the part, but not also not like ancient. She must have been in her 30s by the 90s, something like that. Yeah, I think she was in her district attorney phase. She think she was in her district then. attorney phase, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> she was, she's 62 now. So yeah, she would have been in her 30s, okay. give or take. And change. I think it like it must have been one of those things that was just like somebody said it once in a in a meeting, and it's made right. it into the lore. Because I can't believe, can't bring myself to believe that anybody was seriously considering Madonna for this part. Can you imagine? It's the same sort of change of tone that because I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, like Will Smith talks about it quite openly that he was in the running for Neo in the Matrix. Oh, I think I have heard that. Yeah, and he himself says, Will Smith has said himself, can you imagine how different that movie would be? It would be a Will Smith movie and how it would just like not be the thing it is now. Like, imagine if he had done that and Keanu Reeves had done Men in Black. Oh, wow. What a universe that would be. I would still watch both of them. I would still absolutely watch both of those movies. Maybe Men in Black would have the tone The Matrix has and The Matrix would be a bit more of a buddy comedy. Yeah. <laughs> And um, Madonna and Titanic would just end up being an extended music video. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> but and also, if you if you if you will allow me to continue to blow your mind, uh, yes, and connect all of our podcasts together, Jeremy Sisto, who played Elton in Clueless, was in the running for the part of Jack Dawson to the extent that he even did a screen test with Kate Winslet. Wow. <laughs> so because they... I mean, aside from the fact Elton's a terrible person yeah. but Jeremy Sisto is very handsome he is he's very handsome I think he's underrated handsome because he's such a disgusting <laughs> he plays such a mega dish uh, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, but... he's a would-be attacker so yeah <laughs> so yeah we were nearly rolling with the homies and Titanic so there you go um goodness me I know but to bring it back to the modern day Mm-hmm. If you if you want to, let's talk a little bit about Bill Paxton and the modern day sections of the movie because those are the James Cameron moments. You were right. I think you put it in your notes somewhere. I think so. I'm sure I saw you write something about this um, that Bill Paxton's kind of the proxy for James Cameron and his journey. Right. Okay. We maybe we had a chat about it because we were WhatsApping at the same time because we were really cool, <laughs> <laughs> we were writing notes and also talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, Bill Paxton. Oh, wonderful Bill Paxton. He's, yeah, I feel like James Cameron has written himself into the movie using Bill Paxton. And, you know, it's all very, like, this is the, this is what we need to get into the journey. It feels like, it feels like James Cameron's just kind of put his research process at the top of the movie to get, to get us in. Um, because of all of the stuff, the, the shots of the Titanic under the water are real. Um, yeah. Because uh, I'm sure you know this. I think James Cameron basically said... He kind of he kind of did he kind of did the math. He told them to wake up and smell the audit because he basically said it'll cost you X amount to fake it, or you could give me X amount and a little bit more and send me down with a submersible and I'll actually film the real thing. So amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So there is something about the making of this movie because I think the dives to the Titanic that James Cameron and his team did in order to make this movie were the first of that level that had ever been done. Like to that to that level of technology and um, having the gear that they did and seeing right. seeing the Titanic in the way that it's shown in the movie was like a first. I'm fairly certain. Okay. Um, I suppose because I remember as well, like around about the time when the film came out, there were also documentaries 
there seems to be like tons of documentaries that came out which were about like the making of the Titanic or the real Titanic or you know and it was this kind of so that maybe that was maybe people were able to use it to do non-film related research. My understanding is that James Cameron had a general obsession with shipwrecks and he was a little obsessed with the Titanic but this properly kicked him into like I will now become the resident expert and keeper of the tales of the Titanic because he, okay. he's ever since then he's been kind of the guy you know not the leading expert because obviously there are plenty of historians and, and and other experts on the Titanic but I think James Cameron is now in that gang with them like I think he hangs out with them all <laughs> he's sort they've of in chat. The, yeah they've got they've got a whatsapp group yeah uh leading leading authorities on the titanic so in terms of thinking about what are the modern aspects it's it's kind of that it's kind of what the film did for our understanding of the titanic and how much we know about it um, and i guess it gives us the it gives us some useful exposition in between the bits when we're on the titanic and somebody makes a dangerous decision and it will cut back to Bill Paxton or Brock Lovett saying, oh, but if they'd, they, but their rudder was too small to veer away or, you know, they needed yeah. to turn way ahead or like, it was basically like they knew they should, they, it was like they don't know what they don't know kind of thing. Yeah. And it, and it's like, or great... he says it was something about the captain was like, it was like 30 years of experience playing against him because they were talking yeah. about icebergs in the area and he was like, well, I've never seen one or it's always a fossil alarm. And it basically goes back to Brock Lovett saying, yeah, it usually was for him, but in this case, it was absolutely right. And that's why the training tells you to, not be going at full pelt. Yes, and although the the conditions of the night when it happened, the conditions were perfect for sailing, but they're not perfect if you're in iceberg waters because the, the the stillness of the water and how dark it is, it makes them very hard to spot. So I believe one of the officers says to the captain says it's like the, the, we won't see the water breaks if there are any icebergs. Yeah, and he's just like, Pfft. yeah. But he plays the actor plays it quite well. The actor plays it quite 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 well because he kind of goes, uh huh, yep. You are right. Um, uh, I'm off to bed now with my tea. Let me know if anything yeah. goes wrong. Because <laughs> it's yeah, there's no there's no wind. It's ridiculously still. So it was like it was perfect conditions to go to go down if you get hit an iceberg. And I think there's something about the way the movie's punctuated with this return to modern day is also. It's a reflection of the journey James Cameron went on, apparently, because he went on a kind of, like, I'm going to make this movie. And then in the the research journey he went on, it's the same journey that he then depicts Bill Paxton going on in terms of finally letting the human tragedy of it all in rather than just being a treasure hunter. Right. So he mirrors his own journey in that in that character. And then we as the audience see it peppered throughout as we keep coming back to them because they we start with, like, tell us what you know, old Rose, because I really want my diamond, to in the middle yeah. going, okay, we're now really tense because we know what's coming. And we've just uh -huh. been told this love story to the end where you, you actually see what, what it actually means. What happens. Because um, it is very, it's really powerful. I was just really struck by how powerful the second half of this film is because you do think the enduring kind of legacy of this and like Kate and Leo and the love story and like the cheesy lines and and that's what people remember I'm Flying Jack and King of the World and the door the fucking and the car <laughs> and the ship hits the iceberg and then Spoiler. it gets grad you know and we told you to watch it ship hits the iceberg and then it gets gradually but steadily super stressful <laughs> yes because we also know from Accountancy shoehorn in here. Rose Yay. has performed a safety audit <laughs> of, of the ship. Yep. 
she has counted all the boats on the deck and uh, figured out that there aren't enough for everybody and they basically told her that that was an aesthetic decision because it would be too cluttered and the ship is unsinkable. We have hints of that and it's a well-known thing in history that Rose is noted and Mr Andrews is like a bit like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. That um, comes back to our point about class again because the choice to override safety for aesthetics would absolutely be to please the wealthy. And yeah. you, that's, that's why, because why else are you making that decision? It all comes back to class. And yeah, so we kind of know, but then you kind of see the the scene in the emergency room, like, I don't know, the panic room, that they're all in, like, all the, the captain and Ismi and Mr Andrews are in and Aster, and they're looking through and he's basically explaining that the ship is definitely sinking. We're fine as long as the water's only in these like four compartments, but now that it's gone into the fifth, yeah, this can't withstand the pressure, and I think he says it's a mathematical certainty. It's a mathematical certainty, and, and that's and when they start to accept it's definitely happening. Whereas again, it's like going back to my thesis. It was like it takes quite a lot of persuasion that the rules of maths and nature apply to you just because you think the ship can't sink does not yeah. mean it can't sink. Because it's made of metal. Really hot line when Esme goes, "This ship can't sink," and he goes. She's made of iron, sir. I assure you she can. And I'm like, oh, God. I know, we're in, I know it's a panicky moment, but that really, that was really kind of hot. Maths is hot. Maths is hot. He is hot. Mr. Andrews is hot. And Victor Garber is hot. I know I know we're all going to die, but, like, that was hot. It's, uh, oh, sorry. I went to a place. <laughs> but, yeah, so you kind of get that, and then you see it filtering down through, like, how the rumours are spreading, and people are in their life jackets, and, again, upper-class people are like, oh, just, you know, go put the fire on. I'm cold. I want the quarters to be warm when I get back. And But then you kind of get that, okay, it's sinking. That's fine, because we're better than everybody else. We'll get in a boat. And you're like, oh, maybe we won't all get in a boat. And yeah, it's you kind of have the the realization of everybody that the ship's going down then you have a really dark 45 minutes where you just have lots of tiny stories of people accepting their death mm-hmm. or not yeah. accepting their death but like realizing that it's going to happen which and is very some of those are fictionalized by James Cameron but some of those came from a night to remember some of those are drawn from some things that people remember seeing and they're either glimpses of things that actually happened or he's extrapolated based on first or second hand accounts of what people witnessed so obviously there are things like you know the 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 working class irish lady tucking her children and saying off to the land of tiernanog which oh god that's i know it's too much it is too much but uh it also doesn't make any sense because if she there's no way she could have gone back to her third class compartment because it would have been underwater so unless she's found somewhere else to tuck them in but yeah for a dramatic effect it really works that actually leads me to a, a hot take that i have oh Give it to me. Um, to indulge in my hot take, you have to, I don't believe in reincarnation, but I do require people to suspend their reincarnation disbelief. Okay. Um, my hot take is she's credited as Irish mommy, I think. In this. Is she? Okay. She is played by Jeanette Goldstein, mm-hmm. who also plays Janelle, John Connor's foster mom in Terminator 2. And she oh. also plays Vasquez in Aliens. Fuck, so she does. Yeah. And my hot take is that oh these are all the God. same universe. And um, the, her reluctant having to trust the incompetent authorities 
1912 got her and her children killed. Therefore, when she's reincarnated into the 90s as Janelle, she forgoes having her own children and instead quite cynically takes foster money to foster John Connor, which also gets her killed. And then she is subsequently reincarnated several hundred years into the future as Private Vasquez, who's very questioning of authority and is childless. If I wasn't and already... Also gets killed. I also gets her killed, yeah. If I wasn't already in love with you, I would be now. That is magnificent. <laughs> that is absolutely magnificent. And I want somebody... Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll write the fanfic. The James Cameron movie fanfic that connects those three things. Oh, because they're all James Cameron movies. They're all James Cameron movies. I thought, that's, I thought that was the core bit of your thesis there. Yeah, it's like, Jeanette, I love you. You're fantastic, but I'm going to kill you violently. Yeah, you're going to have, like, yeah, you're just going to go on a journey for me throughout my movies. Yeah. <laughs> she's not quantum leaping, but she's uh, she's dying in one universe and then coming back in, into the other. Like she cloud atlasing. She's Yeah, she's cloud atlasing. <laughs> That's it. I absolutely love that. That's incredible. I have never noticed before that that is the same actor either. So well yeah. played. Well played on every level. Can I give you a hot take that's going to send us off down rabbit hole about yes. patriarchy and feminism? Um, that's not like you. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't, I don't normally have anything to say on these, on these yeah. topics. So my hot take is that ties into Ruth, uh, Rose's mum, her comment about... Um, when she's giving Rose a bit of a row. So she's met Jack. They've had the moment where she's nearly jumped off the boat and he's rescued her, for want of a better expression, and Ruth smells the blood in the water. Like, there's a part of her, I think, that understands it, but she's very much made up her own mind about... And I'm not excusing Ruth's behaviour because Ruth is also subject to the whole, like, uh, Edwardian rich person hubris thing because she doesn't believe... That anything can happen you know she like you know she's the one that's like pulling on her gloves and telling Trudy to prepare tea being asked to like to head up and put on their life jackets as a huge inconvenience and they'll be back in their rooms shortly um, yeah she's so an anti-masker for sure she's an anti-masker she's just I'm not excusing her but she makes this comment of saying of course it's unfair for women our choices are never easy and mm -hmm. my hot take is that in many ways the sinking for these women is a huge stroke of luck because well for Rose in particular because it makes the choice for her because I think yeah. that Ruth has a point. Rose has an impossible choice ahead of her. And if the boat didn't sink, because like there's part of me later on in the movie when they do the drawing scene and she's writing a note. Basically, she's dumping Cal in the most like grandiose possible way. Such a brutal burn to like leave somebody in nude. Oh my God. It's just, it's huge. It's a huge, <laughs> like, it's a bold power move. But yeah. every time I watch that, I'm always like, you've got at least two days before you dock in New York. What are you going to do? Just like hide, try and avoid it? Like, like what's yeah. going to happen here? Which brings me back to, yeah, the colossal dumping. It's a colossal dumping of Cal is what she's going for yeah. here. And I guess to bring it back to my hot take is that you're really lucky that mm -hmm. fucking ship hit the iceberg because what were you going to do? What was going to happen to your mum? Like, let's be real here. Was Would Cal keep on? Keep mum on? Like, because I feel like the implication is that you're so. all surviving off Cal's money at the moment because mm -hmm. Ruth says your father has left us nothing but bad debt hidden by a good name. So yeah. they are ostensibly penniless or that's what we're being told. Cal is mm -hmm. their ticket to survival. So my hot take is that it's a bold move it's it's in, in feminist principles it's the right move 
But in order to make it, she has to throw her mum under the bus. And there's a question around whether or not you're even going to get off the boat safely. Like, because we, what we've learned about Cal is, like, he's not going to allow that. Like, even if the, if, if, the, if the ship hadn't hit the iceberg, he wasn't just going to idly go back to the drawing room and have brandy with the guys. He was going to hunt you both down on that boat and make sure that... You, do you know what I mean? It's an impossible choice. Yeah. And the hot take is that I mean, the iceberg saved you from having to deal with that. <laughs> I mean, I think, arguably, at that point, Jack was probably screwed anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was, if because I think what would have happened is Jack would have just got, got rid of yeah. either through prison or worse. I mean, they might have tried to pay him off, but he's essentially the male equivalent of, he's a manic pixie dream boy. Like he's preteen girl fantasy. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. <laughs> um, but between Jack Dawson and Han Solo, I have been given unrealistic expectations. <laughs> Yeah, and he yeah, because... makes it pretty clear in the when they're having tea, and he's like, "You'll never behave like that again." He makes it pretty clear in that conversation that her consent or willingness to be his love is actually really not really of any. He's kind of like, "We can do this hard, the hard way or the easy way." Yeah, totally. And um, it's one of those things where actually, if when I think about it even further, that's probably why there's not much in between that scene in the gym. And then her returning to Jack, because James Ca- James Cameron knows that he's about to fucking bang this boat, or that history is about to bang this boat into an iceberg. So actually, he doesn't really need her to have much more than because there have been other things that have taken place that would have been more of an a, a, an inciting incident to get her to choose Jack than just seeing the little girl. But you don't need more than that because we know where we're going from here, and we know we're yeah. doomed. So she can make a doomed choice. Um, yeah, she doesn't know she's doomed, it- but. <laughs> We do. No, and also, I guess, like, she's 17. Yeah. And there's a difference as well in between the way that she behaves pre-Jack and post-Jack, where she actually just starts to behave like a teenager. She's rude to her mum. Well, she's rude to her mum the whole film. Yeah. Um, in a fairly adolescent way. But then when she decides she's going to be with Jack, reclaims her sexuality and... Um, or actually, for the first time, claims her sexuality. And then even just things like when they're just running about the, bo- the ship being silly. Yeah. And getting chased by the manservant guy, ex policeman manservant, and they're just having a, they're just having a lovely time being naughty, and they, and she gives him the finger and like yeah, it's, it's all before like the doom sets in where she's just like the absolute delight in having taken back her own what's the word I'm looking for agency um, self determination yeah, yeah her own agency but to just further expand on my hot take is the doom was coming either way because mm-hmm. there's an element there's an argument to be made that in the context of this world and this is a world that this was a time period and a world that this is this is true this is this is real life this is not a fictional element to this world because of the patriarchy she was doomed anyway because ultimately mm-hmm. there was no version of events without an iceberg that that, that was going to get interrupted she doesn't yeah. have the emotional maturity to understand that Ruth has a point our choices are not easy and you do not have the freedom to make this choice to run off with this boy because it won't be allowed and I'm not saying that that's right but that's the sort of slightly that's the hot take element it's like Rose doesn't seem to understand or maybe she understands she doesn't care that it's just not something that it's not a choice that's open to her unless she unless she and Jack successfully hide on the boat until it gets into New York and she doesn't really give a fuck about her mum which is fair enough if she doesn't give a fuck about her mum that's sort of fair enough her mum is also a bit of a there is and also it's like she's actually not saying that they're going to be dead on the street it's we're going to have to sell off our stuff and I'm going to be a seamstress yeah which is isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person 
No. Um, so you're going to have to become accustomed to a different lifestyle. And in she's asking... In New York, as a single woman, older woman, and a daughter. Oh no, it'd be hard. I'm not saying it would be nice, but is it <laughs> nice? Is it is it better than your daughter being essentially raped for the rest of her ma- for the rest of her husband's life? Like, and there and therein lies the hot take. <laughs> yeah, and so Rose, I guess, yeah, she was saved. Yeah, she was saved from the difficult choice because they're both crap. Yeah, they're not good either way. Whichever way, whichever way you slice it, you're you're not faced with excellent options. Yeah, so and she can make a decision in. for herself. Yeah, but and she and she does get off in New York by herself, and she becomes an actress. Yeah. Um. Again, Iceberg made that choice for her, sorted it out. Mm. So. Good. Uh, Think maybe I've been recording this whole time with the wrong setting on, but hopefully it will be fine. This is your captain speaking to say no, it was not fine. Thank you for your patience. Oh, yeah, I think it was on the wrong setting that entire time, but never mind. Never mind. Got another three hours of the podcast to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was wondering Mm -hmm. why the heart of the ocean is blue, and I found out. Give it to me. So the reason that the Cour de la Mer is blue... Um, blue diamonds do exist they are rare and uh, they're more rare than a yellow diamond but less rare than a red diamond Ooh. and the reason they are blue is because the carbon diamonds are a tight carbon structure and in blue diamonds the diamond structure is tainted with boron atoms and the reason they are blue is because boron has three electrons outside its nucleus whereas carbon has four. So when the atoms in the structure of the diamond are bonding with each other in a normal colourless diamond, all of the electrons in the carbon bond with other electrons. But if you're neighboured to a boron atom, then not all of your electrons can bond. So there are little extra electrons whizzing around, and that interrupts the light. It tends to absorb the lower frequency red light which makes up white light, which leaves you with a bluish hue. Well, damn. Blowing your mind with more Jackie's facts. And that, apparently, is what makes it worth like around $250 million mm-hmm. or more. Because that's what the Hope Diamond is worth, which is what I believe the Cour de la Mer is based on. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. more so, because I think they referenced the Hope Diamond in the movie. It says it's worth more than the Hope Diamond. Yeah, but, and you yeah. don't even need that much boron. So all you have to do is just get diamonds and then stick some boron in there and you are rich, my friend. There we go. Science. Science. Um, so why do we think Rose Rose has kept it this whole time? Yeah. And has obviously not recorded it as, as being in existence because your man, Bill Paxton, as you discovered, knows that there's an insurance claim for it and it was written off as lost. Mm-hmm. So she's just kept it this entire time. Which means that she's not made any money off it. Like it's not it's not something that like has sustained her. She's not used it basically is what I'm getting at to like, you know, support herself. Uh which would have been a perfectly logical thing to have done in some ways. I suppose it would be it might just have it might have raised raised some questions, I guess. Like if you if she's she's come off the Titanic and she's essentially recorded as having died on board. Yeah. And she declares herself as, as Rose Dawson when she gets to America. So if she had gone, there's no way that a diamond like that would just be bought, no questions asked. That's true. 
Yeah, she we couldn't so, like take it to a pawn shop in downtown Manhattan and just be like under the table. What we got. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, things like that you can't just sell if they're hot. Absolutely. Yes. So it's like she either would have been, have stolen it or she would have to declare who she was, yeah. which would let Cal find her. Which but she I mean, she could have also I, I, I yeah, I'm just I'm just extrapolating here. I'm just sort of trying to imagine. Because yeah. she could she have in theory like declared it after Cal had died, because she knows that she yeah she knows that he put pistol kinds of in his mouth. Oh, and she doesn't give a shit about that. Like her facial, ex- Gloria Stewart's expression is like, or so I read, and I mean, she just looks like I read it, and then I just made another cup of tea. Not to be callous, but yeah, I feel you, girl. Like yeah, some of her last words to the man were, "You unimaginable bastard." <laughs> so good. Like it's spit in the face. It's like, yeah, fucking like loogie in the face. Um, yeah, so I suppose she in theory could have cashed in then when Cal died because yeah, or the I risk guess, is like, probably minimal at that point. Or, or even like when she'd arrived, like maybe if she'd taken, if you took any sentimentality out of the need to hold all of that diamond together, I'm sure there would have been some sort of less than scrupulous jeweler who'd have broken it up. Yeah. For, I feel and it, like less value, but still lots of money for everybody. Yeah. I feel like for her, it's a symbolic thing. I think it's like the keeping of that item and keeping it locked away in a secret sort of represents locking away her heart and locking away that part of her mm-hmm. yeah um, maybe I'm being overly no I think you are no no, no you're not overly <laughs> I think you're correct um because <laughs> one of the things that actually I always find fascinating when watching this movie is just the sheer level of trauma that everybody who experienced that who lived would have gone through the survivor's guilt the remembering it I I, I saw a little it was the anniversary recently it was the anniversary last month of like I can't remember the the, the sort of number it's been the 100 and, 109th 109th something like that yeah there was obviously there's you know a little there's always a little flurry of something around about that time of year and there was a some archive footage of a, a an older man an older man being interviewed I think it was probably in like the 80s or the late 70s because most people most survivors have died now I think they all have actually must have and like he casually makes a comment about oh, he'll probably have a nightmare tonight he hasn't had one in a while but he'll probably will have one tonight Aww. because of talking about it and it's like yeah good lord how traumatic I guess because you, you hear so much about people coming back from the first world war and they didn't recognize PTSD they called it shell shock mm-hmm. and it took such a long time for that even to be recognized as as a a mental condition that yeah. people could have and yeah this people must have had that and just had to go on with it yeah and rose probably i mean there's extra layers for rose in the sense that this experience changed her forever on so many levels the person that she met and she fell in love and and then obviously the actual act of going down on the titanic so the yeah the keeping of the necklace and keeping it under lock and key and then never speaking of it again is probably all part of that trauma process and she had absolutely nothing that was the only thing of hers or like anywhere close to approaching hers that she had other than the the clothes she was wearing Mm -hmm. so I suppose she didn't really have anything to remember Jack for and he drew her wearing that as well does she mention if she ever gets in touch with her mother because her mum survives her mum survives I don't think I don't think I don't think the movie addresses it but I'm wondering if Rose would have she would have got in touch with her mum yeah, or if her mum would have stayed in touch with Cal if maybe they were just like, well, not your fault. Maybe Molly Brown was nice to her. Yeah. 
she had to be nicer to Molly Brown because she's not very nice to her. No. Start. No, she is not. Or maybe she's a seamstress. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I think it's just, I think the last shot we get of Ruth is in the morning after shots where everybody's being, like everyone who's on the lifeboats. And then I don't think it's addressed again. But I think you're right. I think it probably follows that Ruth would try and find Cal and that maybe they would... I don't know. He might have given her like a stipend or something. Something like that, yeah. I don't know. It depends on how generous you want to be with Cal's, like, well, if I'm not marrying your daughter, you're not important to me. Yeah, or maybe she had insurance on all of their stuff. Yep, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Okay, so... We haven't really... We've kind of skirted around Jack Dawson. We haven't really talked about him. No, and I really loved your uh, point that he's kind of the male equivalent of a manic pixie dream girl. I love that. That's really... (laughs) It's true. He's a sort of, he's almost like, in a weird way, uh, her later point, Old Rose, her point of like, he exists now only in my memory. It's like, you could argue that maybe, maybe Jack never existed at all. <laughs> or maybe he did exist, and but the Jack Dawson we see is an idealised version of the guy. So yeah. like, this is what she remembers him as being. It doesn't mean, he might have said, he might have made a really beautiful speech to her in the gym, but maybe it wasn't quite as perfect as that. Yeah, because it is pretty perfect. <laughs> Oh, it's so perfect. Because it's basically, he's not actually even asking her to come away with him. He's basically just saying, I just need to know that you're okay, so what are you going to do? Yeah, like you're literally... You can see how abusive Cal is. Yeah, you're dying. You are literally dying in this life and I can't... I need to know that you'll be all right. Yeah, it's like... And and to respond to the, like, I don't need you to save me with, like, I know that. Like, Mm -hmm. only you can do that. That It's just so, like... It's just very well pitched. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, I need to know what you're going to do, though, because I'm invested. Yeah, I'm in this now. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very perfect speech. Yeah, when she's about to jump off the ship and he says, well, I can't walk away because I'm involved now. Yeah. So basically, like, I'm, I'm in this with you. And yeah, and then that gets reflected in the gym speech. I think it was also just worth noting that every single... Apart from he does kiss her, but she makes the move where she basically finds him saying, I'm getting off. No, she doesn't say I'm getting off the ship with you. But she finds him and says, oh, let's hang out. Maybe she does say I'm getting off the ship with you, actually. She says, when when we get to New York, I'm getting off with you, which teenage me found oh. very funny. And I still find Yeah, but funny. that is after they've had sex. That's after they've had sex, yes. So at this point, she just comes and she's told him to go away, but then she comes, finds him again, and they do the cheesy boat bit. bow thing, which is fine. And I, I just, I made a decision i recommend anyone else do this but just just let that stuff in like just do it it's fine. <laughs> just, let it in. <laughs> just let it in just let it be sincere like because it's like, so much nicer than being cynical about it like bill paxton let the titanic in you've got to let yeah. the titanic in too and that yeah, means got mm-hmm. letting in king of the worlds i'm flying yeah. and we're to miss to the stars <gasps> i hate that line i know but you know what i just i ha- i love the idea that like if jack had survived and they'd got off the ship together and they grew up old but poor and i just really like this idea of them like getting older and older but staying in love and like them having like this bit where jack would always treat her like a fancy lady oh look at you <laughs> <laughs> That is cute, yeah. I think that would be really nice. Um, so like, even like if they had kids, they would just be like, I don't know, like more tea, miss. Like they would yeah. just do the thing and just remind her that she's a fancy lady. She's a fancy lady, um, yeah. <laughs> but I just think it's nice and it's probably one of the reasons why this has 
this was such a thing for and I think specifically preteen girls and mm-hmm. tween girls more than women about yeah. what a fantasy this was because she's engaged to this really aggressive entitled possessive man and she meets Jack but actually she is the complete driving force in all of the all of the sexual interaction between them mm-hmm. yeah um to the point where he's just kind of like every every single step of the way he's like uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah she really takes ownership of that sex scene yeah and it's well she takes ownership of it all like she's the one that instigates the draw me like one of your french girls thing mm-hmm. and and then yeah in the car and then you know the scene afterwards where we're i assume we're supposed to uh it's like post coitus and they are that you know he's trembling and she's very in charge like she's yeah, got she's this fine. kind of like you're she points out that he's trembling she holds him she's been very in charge of it all the way through which is and and you know put your hands on me jack another kind of cheesy line but also sort of like it's also like her telling him what to do which is it's her telling him what to do and it's also saying like i decide who puts their hands on me because yeah when jack has saved her from falling off the ship um and they think he's assaulting her mm-hmm. because of the way it looks and everything Cal comes out and says, what made you think you could put your hands on my fiancé? And it's like that idea of like, well, you don't decide who puts their hands on me. I decide who puts their hands on me and I want Jack to do it. And I think it's just nice. And underrated consent king in this film is Fabrizio. (laughs) Because... Um, when they're in, when they're down having the Irish party sesh, mm-hmm. um, the first thing we see is Fabrizio dancing with what looks like one of the maids, and he says, "Can I put my hand here?" As he's about to put his hand on her waist. Oh, isn't that nice? And I just think that they must have met, like drawing stuff in Paris or something, and just bonded over their mutual respect for women. <laughs> I love it, which just, uh, yeah, further feeds the narrative that Jack Dawson and his boys, yeah, they are the manic pixie dream boys. But also, you know, we can we can raise men to be like this. Of course we can. And Absolutely. We're starting to, I think. I think that there's some, well, there. I mean, and, and we have, there are some good, there's some very good men out there who do these things. Mm-hmm. More than don't, I would like to think. Yeah. But I just thought it was just kind of nice when I was thinking about how nice the, how respectful that the main romance is. But actually, like, Jack's got these friends. Yeah, he does. It's just, uh, it's a fun time all round with, with Jack and his friends. And um, Jack, and, and in addition to having his perfect speech in the gym, also has the perfect speech at the dinner table. He's completely, or at least he presents as completely unfazed by the situation and, uh, and is there to challenge the upper classes at every turn and does so in a very kind of like I'm your buddy kind of way I wonder if he's partly being remembered and again this is maybe this is like wanky academic film thing but like I wonder if he is there's a rose no pun intended rose colored glasses (laughs) remembering of Jack in the retelling of this because it is it's only it is her story and she's remembering it after 80 years or however long it's been it's been 84 years 1912 to 1996 is when it was probably shot, so yeah. Yeah. So what we haven't really talked about mm-hmm. is the way that there was two movies in one here. Okay. How we go from this beautiful love story and what it says about class and what it says about patriarchy, etc., etc., into mm-hmm. action-packed historical reenactment. I don't know. Is there a comment on loss of innocence? I think there absolutely is. There? Like... Oh. Have we had sex and removed ourselves from the Garden of Eden? Yep, and we, we've grown up now. We're adults that have to face all of the things that the world is going to throw at us, and that gets 
really condensed over the next hour and a half. So yeah, apparently everything from, or at least James Cameron said that, yeah, everything he does from that point on in the movie is to try and as accurately as possible mm-hmm. depict what, what happens. That's why it's so fucking stressful. It's so <laughs> stressful. I mean, it's stressful as soon as it happens because you know, like, when it's stressful soon, the second they set foot in the boat, you see it, you're just like, the ship, stuck on a boat, it's a ship. Um, <laughs> it's, which is an important distinction my father tells me, and I'm sure it is, cause I guess because it's correct. Yeah. Um, but it's very stressful, but then when things, especially when things just start to go to shit, mm. and, like, you've got, like, the, you know, when you start seeing, like, oh, there's lifeboats with nobody on them, or, like, 12 people on them when they're built for 60, and then they're, like, they can't get the one off, and then again, like, Fabrizio has, like, such a little arc here there's like a little like few minutes that are just about that have like dots in of like Fabrizio trying to get away and he knows he's not not getting on a boat but he basically like they're trying to get the boat one of the lifeboats down and the ropes are stuck yeah and the ship's like going down like so that they're actually quite close to the water but they can't get the boat released from the ship and he pulls a knife out of his pocket and starts cutting away the ropes yeah and then he just starts to swim away. And then at that point, I think I wrote in my notes that I can't remember, does Fabrizio survive this film? And then my next note is, oh. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, immediately, like, the big mat, like, the big post in the middle of the ship snaps. and Yeah. The funnel comes down on top of him. Yeah. Yeah. It's so unbelievably stressful. And I have, I've tried to sort of analyse why the Titanic holds so much fascination for people and why it's still so like in so many ways in the popular consciousness and I think it's partly just the sheer scale of it like the sheer scale of and loss of human life it was like the worst maritime disaster ever I think it still is and I think there was like a total revision of practice around maritime safety and so many people died so many people died and then and obviously we've got a blockbuster movie to sort of really you know map out exactly what that experience looked like but yeah it just feels like it, there is this sort of enduring human fascination with things like this that is sort of intriguing i think there's something in the fact that it was a completely preventable disaster yeah and it's also the kind of it's it's a it was a preventable disaster certainly it didn't have to be as bad as it was mm-hmm. it didn't have to happen and then it didn't have to be as bad as it was there there is a metaphor to be drawn with covid there 100 percent yeah and um, and then there's also something about i don't know like the arrogance of man against nature or something that Hubris. we have about yeah like why why do we think we can do these things and the arrogance of I don't know, the arrogance of humanity, something like oh, that. For like, sure. The, yeah, this idea that they had built an unsinkable ship. And, like, it's basically Cal's fault, really, because as soon as he gets out of the car, he says, God can sink this ship. Yeah, God himself can sink this ship. Yeah, the, the hubris is peppered throughout, through Cal mm-hmm. and through Ismay, you know, Ismay's pushing for the boilers to be lit when it's like, I just, I just want to make, I want to, I want her to be the biggest and the fastest. Like, all right, all right, mate. But there's, and there's just there are lots of things and it's you know you could say the same same bit Grenfell without it can't be too political but like there are these things it's just like terrible things happen and when you look and you think okay but if this doesn't seem like a particularly complex thing to have done this doesn't seem like a complicated measure to put in place to keep people safe and we didn't do it and then that always preventable tragedies are fascinating and yeah. I suppose they're fascinating from an evolutionary point of view because we're supposed to learn from them yeah yeah, you're supposed to see things going wrong and think, okay, I don't want that to happen in my village. 
Yeah. So what do I do? For sure. Would this be a good point, I wonder? Do we want to just start firing through our notes and do we want to do it that way? Yeah, yeah I think that would be nice. Uh, well, we've both commented on the score. Yeah, the score's amazing, particularly when we make that switch from love love and romance to, okay, here we fucking go with the action and the disaster. Yeah. Jim Horner knows exactly what he's doing because it's like, I can, I can feel it in my chest when that, that tone shifts as we get closer to the iceberg and, oh God, it's making me feel a bit ill just remembering. <laughs> like, yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing and it hurts me. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> Did you have the soundtracks? I had the soundtrack. I did have the soundtrack and also for some reason bought that that single that Celine Dion single which I will not hear I mean not that I'm, I'm not insinuating that you you are saying anything against Signal but I was like again listen to it to like ad nauseum listen yeah. to ad nauseum <laughs> when it came out yeah totally and learned it on my penny whistle <laughs> and haven't listened to it once for about 20 years <laughs> And then it came on at the end of the film. And it was like, this is such a belter of a tune. It just gets you right it's in the feels. So <laughs> it's so good. I know that it was overplayed, particularly if you had a daughter of that age or a sister or any friend. Because actually when I was talking to a couple of my friends who live in Spain and um, one of them was saying that his brother went to see it in the cinema several times. Um, and we also have a Belfast. most people did, did they not? Most people yeah. saw it a few times, I think. Yeah, I think I saw it two or three times in the cinema and then just on a loop in my house in between the regular Leonardo DiCaprio marathon that went on in the farmer household. (laughs) So yeah, very good soundtrack. I think I'm going to listen to it again this week. One of my friends who lives in Spain, who is from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and he um, thought it was important to acknowledge the saying that is prominent in Belfast that the Titanic was fine when it left us. Well, absolutely. <laughs> uh, as uh, Tommy rightly points out, it was built by Irish hands yeah. and uh, makes that great comment. You can see where we rank in the, in the scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, class struggles on a boat. I was emotional at this film at two minutes and 42 seconds in. Oh yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. That that fucking the way it's framed, which I think I think it's real footage. I don't know if it's real footage or yeah, if it's, yeah. it must be because otherwise that seems to be like the reason they went down there was to get footage. Yeah, oh yeah, no. So yeah, the, the the footage of it, the actual Titanic, the wreck looming out mm. of the water, is the real Titanic. I'm talking about the sort of sepia toned happy images that the, the movie opens with before oh, we even right, start okay. and it's a sepia toned what looks like the, the boat in Southampton before it sets sail sorry the ship sorry Mr Farmer the ship in Southampton before it sets sail Dr Farmer I'm sure it's fine Dr Farmer I, I, it can't be real footage but he, they've made it look like it was taken on the day and it's just like and Jim Horner's little refrain comes in and it's like I'm there before we've even like got past the, the title of the film like, oh God. It's brilliant, and it's so like going from yeah that, and then between the wreck footage, it's just very sobering quite early on. That you're kind of like it reminds you right at the start. It's like this is what we're here to learn about. I yes. have a note saying why would you even get excited before you even looked in the thing, which is a reference to Bill Paxton and his modern day crew being very premature about their celebrations they around finding the, the safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I have yeah I have a note on that as well that says very premature celebrations, lads. Yeah, because like it's just. 
You don't even know what's in there. You do not know what's in there. And let's all be you logical. have is an insurance claim. Yeah. That's all you have. Also, like, let's be logical. Even if you could be certain that that is the safe of the person in question, which you can't really be 100% certain that it is. Not really. I know yeah. you've kind of, I know the idea is that they've calculated roughly where Cal's quarters would have been or Cal's stateroom would have been. But even then, you cannot be certain. And let's be logical. Why would you not empty your safe if you thought you were going down on a ship? Which he actually does. Cal mm-hmm. does go I make my own luck and he, and my own insurance and he goes back to the safe and empties it and fills his pockets why in yeah. God's name wouldn't he also take the most valuable diamond on earth <laughs> like, it just seems like yeah. use your brain guys like engage brain yeah, very premature. Seems very premature. Um, I mean, by all means, have the shampoos handy. Sure, because you might find it. something else. Yeah. You could be like, surely most things, if, you know, there's a lot of very rich people on that boat, I would imagine there's an option to find a few things down there that are worth something. I find there's some Picassos down there, although I don't know how the Picassos don't, because one thing I was wondering is whether pencil lead, pencil lead would survive. Oh, I don't know. I, I was wondering about that, that too. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. And I just I decided not to go like down that rabbit hole because I was like, we just need it to be there so that we can get the story going. Yeah. May, I was like, maybe it's something to do with the fact that it was locked in the safe and it was a wee bit protected. But who the Let's fuck not, knows? Yeah. Let's not. Yeah, you're right. Uh, my next one is that the slave ship metaphor has not aged well. No. Um, which... Oh. Um, so that was a line that in her narration, old Rose is talking about when they when she come when we see her for the first time, we see young Rose for the first time coming out of the car and looking at the ship and boarding it. And there's this line about how to her, like it was the most she has a line about how it's the most luxurious, biggest, opulent ship ever made. But then she says, but to me it was a, a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. Yeah. And unfortunately. James Cameron beleaguers that a little bit later on because Jack has mm-hmm. a line where he says, I have to return to rule with the other slaves. And I'm like, oh, God. Like, I know we're talking about it not aging well, but even then it was like, guys, really? Like, there is mm-hmm. no comparison to you and Steerage Jack or your patriarchal cage that you're in, Rose, to yeah. the experience of... People on a slave ship. People on a slave ship. It, and the robbed humanity and, and the generational trauma that inherent in that. Yes. Stop making the comparison. <laughs> it's white yeah. privilege in action all up and down the boat, all up and down the ship. Because yeah. there's no, I don't think there's any black people in this movie at all, apart from I think there was one extra in the furnace room who's black, okay. who you spot pretty much by accident because they're on the periphery. So, like, this is a white, white movie, a really white movie. Yeah. Fabrizio's Italian or Spanish, I'm not entirely sure because his accent's a bit weird, which you pointed out. <laughs> Before I remembered what a wonderful person Fabrizio was, I was like, that accent is... I have no, I have no claims to an Italian heritage whatsoever, but I find that accent yeah, it's, it's a bit much. And it was like, yeah... Yeah, it's just a super white movie. So that yeah, these these yeah. Yeah. it was the most <sighs> offensive Italian accent since Mr. Martini and It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh there's a Middle Eastern family and a, Yeah, and they yeah. can't read the and they can't read signs, the signs. The safety signs. Yeah, that's and horrible. It's, it's so horrible because it's like in deep panic mode and he's trying to he's got the little translation book out and he's oh it's awful. It's so awful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, apart from the one black guy I think you see out of the corner of your eye when they're running I through the furnace room. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't um, see him. It, yeah, well, it's, it's like he's literally not there to be seen. It's like it's yeah. like it's blinking, you miss him. And the Middle Eastern family, like it's a white up and down white movie. Yeah. So yeah, that 
is on top of these really uncultured lines it's just like no yeah we don't no. get to we don't get to use we ha- we can use so many metaphors in this life absolutely and that is not one that's not one of them it's no jimmy c you do not get pass on this occasion no. um and speaking of not letting jimmy c away with much i should point out that i don't want to be uh have anyone interpret me as deifying him and discussing his ability as a filmmaker in this movie because apparently he was an unmitigated nightmare and kate winslet said she would never work with him again um oh, really yeah did she like, not get hypothermia lots of people got hypothermia she chipped her elbow yes. as well and it's never really recovered apparently and yeah like james cameron has used uh, he's he's admitted that he's got a terrible temper and has said that yeah it can be difficult to work with but he <laughs> he's made excuses for himself by saying like making a movie like this is a bit like going to war like i have to yell at people to make sure things get done and to make sure they get done safely which is it's very well doing things so they get done safely, but people still got hypothermia. People got hypothermia and chipped their elbows <laughs> and got yelled at, like, a lot. And there's this story about, apparently, when they were filming, because they filmed chunks of it out in the Atlantic, so the, 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 the modern-day stuff with the submersibles, like, they did film that on a boat out on the Atlantic somewhere. And the rest of it was on a, a custom-built stage full of water in, somewhere in Mexico. And um, there's this story about a crew member who was so disgruntled and hated James Cameron so much that he slipped PCP in the food or the drinks of everybody and everybody got poisoned and, like, somebody had to go to hospital. And they never found out who it was, but the rumour goes that it was a very disgruntled, unhappy crew member. Oh, dear. I know. Oh, I think I read an article about that and it was like, did you know, James Cameron came back in the room and, like, the director of photography was leading a conga line or something because people were just having different... Different reactions to it. Yeah. Yeah, but somebody was being, like, violently sick. Yeah. A couple people were actually having a lovely time. Yeah. That's not a nice thing to do. So, yeah, we're not deifying James Cameron and his ways, just FYI. I I mean, I have a comment that's just Leo with ten hearts next to it. Um, just to something came back to me uh, which does kind of bring me on to Leo is a bit of a problematic fave unfortunately he wasn't then but he is yeah he he's not then. great I mean I don't actually know that much about him because I've stopped buying the magazines um, <laughs> I will until the day I die know that his birthday is the 11th of November but I, I think he is yet to have a girlfriend reach her 26th birthday Ew. which is gross it was yeah. fine when I remember like being 12 being 100% in love with him being like okay he's 24 uh, so I'm probably too young but now still 12 years his junior I am 9 years too old to go out with Leonardo DiCaprio I missed my window oh well, it's probably for the best because. Well, it's just yeah, it's just a no. It's just disappointing. I don't think Jack Dawson would have done that. No, I. I mean, I've heard that he he and his little there's like a little cohort of them that are sort of famously known for their bad behaviour, just in terms of being like bros and and apparently Toby Maguire's in the gang and apparently he's a right arsehole. Oh, um, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard he is. Did they? Is there not like? Are they not like a pack? You know, there was like the, the brat pack. Yeah. And then there was the frat pack. Yeah, there was, something like and then that. There was the, the no, there was the rat pack, which was rat packs. Dean Snatch Martin, Frank Snatcher. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And then was the brat pack that was like Emilio Estevez and Rob Lowe and stuff. That's right. Yeah. And then. And I can't remember what they called themselves, uh, Leo and his gang, but it was something like that. They were like. I'm gonna look it up because. Someone is yelling this at the... And actually, the, the, fa- the uh, there are seven people here. The only other person I recognise other than Leo and Tobey Maguire is David Blaine. All right. <laughs> um, 
and they called themselves the Pussy Posse. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So actually, I'm glad Heavy I didn't know that bulk. when I was 12 because it would have broken my heart. Yep. That's disgusting. That is gross. I think I was thinking about the Frat Pack, which I think is the Apatow crew. Oh, yeah, maybe. Anyway, I, you know, I, I think with Leonardo DiCaprio, like from what little I've heard of him, I think he's just one of these guys who has just been so famous and so rich from such a young age that he just doesn't have a, a, a compass for normal human behaviour at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, that happens a lot where these sorts of things are concerned. But I mean, Keanu Reeves is going out with somebody age appropriate. But he's a king. We know that. He is a king. King Keanu. King. It comes up a lot. It was like, remember, he turned up to that ceremony with his girlfriend who has grey hair and everybody just lost, lost their it. minds. I know, I know, it's nuts. <laughs> it's like, they're like the same age, though. <laughs> I know. It's, like, I know. it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, this is, he's going out with someone his own age. Maybe he just likes her. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he has more to talk about with her because he, they are the same age. Maybe they have a relationship based on mutual respect. Yeah. What a crazy idea. What have I got for you? Uh, Rose's pinstripe ivory suit dress at the start is exquisite. It is great. Mm-hmm. The outfits in this are fantastic. Yeah, the costume is um, unreal. My next comment is, Louise, we should have a trip on the Waverly when it's allowed. Yes, please. <laughs> for listeners who are not Glaswegian, actually, the Waverly is a steamboat, a paddle steamer. It's one of the, I think my, it's the only paddle, the only the working paddle steamer in the yeah, it's the only ocean-going paddle steamer left, I think. I'm pretty sure it's um, the only one. It's great. You can. I think it's maybe being fixed at the moment. I said it, and it should have been she. <laughs> but yeah, she kind of got bumped, and she needed to be fixed, and then she got bumped again. And there's kind of a constant fundraising for her upkeep. So Louise and I both live in Glasgow, and you can board her for like day trips and it's not like it's not mad expensive it's It's it's, great prices depends on where you're going but I mean a day trip on her is like 30 or 40 pounds like it's not mad she's a lot of fun I would highly recommend looking her up and if you're ever in Scotland in the lighter months I don't want to say the warmer months because sometimes that has absolutely nothing to do with our actual weather but certainly the months with the most daylight very much recommend if you're visiting go on the Waverley great way to see other bits of Scotland as well because you can go down to Largs you can go to Millport you can go to Rothsea you can even take her up to Skye you can it's stunning and there are a couple of bars on board very very good whiskey selection one of the pubs I would like to point out at this juncture we are not sponsored by waverleyexcursions.co.uk but after this episode I feel like we should be Yes, just from the heart. It's great. It's a great yeah. day out. And I'm very excited about our upcoming day out on yes. the Waverley. I oh, think she has a way to get fixed at the moment, but she should be back because technically we are still in COVID uh, at the moment here in Scotland. Yeah. Well, we're still in COVID everywhere, but we're kind of half in, half out in terms of quarantine and lockdown restrictions. And 2021 is the year of coasts and waters in Scotland. So the Waverley had really? big plans for this year that she hasn't quite got on top of yet but hopefully when she comes back and she's had her she's had her butt fixed I think it was her butt that she got uh dunted in hopefully she'll be back soon and we should absolutely little money maker maker. we should absolutely uh get on that she is entering into service in june excellent so that's exciting so she'll have her main summer program in the Clyde until late august this isn't actually for the podcast this is just louise and i making plans <laughs> yeah we're just making our plans okay let's get it's back also to the, podcast. the 75th anniversary of her lunch sorry it is yes it is the 75th anniversary of her lunch but we should get back on to the titanic <laughs> yes I'm for sure. now 
um, yeah, before we jinx her. Um, <laughs> touch wood, touch wood, touch wood. Oh my wood. god. Spin the spot ten times. Uh, open your heart to me, Rose. There's something about that line. It's just, it's, it's there. Open your heart to me, Rose. When he comes to her uh, and gives her the heart of the ocean. So there's so many things happening for me in this scene and I'm just like, I'm wondering about lots of things. So first of all, does Cal suspect that actually she was going to kill herself? Or like, I feel like he knows something else happened. I don't know if he knows exactly what happened, but he knows Rose is off. He knows she's miserable because he says it. I know you've been melancholy. So I'm wondering how much does he know? Like how much do we, how much credit do we give Cal in this moment for knowing what happened? Really, the truth of it. I had read it as he didn't mean heart. Yeah, yeah. does he mean, like, you haven't slept with me yet? Does he mean, I don't know what's going on in your head? Is it all of the above? His choice to give her the heart of the ocean, because he says, I was going to give you at the engagement gala, but I'm going to give it to you now. Mm-hmm. And it feels more than just, like, you haven't slept with me yet. It doesn't, it doesn't feel weighted in that way. It's not about... Because the use of language there doesn't have a sexual undertone to me. It has a possessive undertone, which I think for somebody like Cal, those things are all related. The possessive as in like, I need and want all of you. I need to own all of you. Body, heart and soul. So all of that is there Mm -hmm. without a romantic edge to it, I should add. There's just something about it. The the, the line open your heart to me, Rose, just feels very ripe for analysis. It's the line that made me want to originally offer a hot take about Cal, which I've since reneged on, which is like, does Cal just actually want to be loved? (laughs) Which again, it's not me excusing his behaviour or trying to humanise him because he is an unimaginable bastard. I agree. Yeah. But there is something about that line. And then he is extremely possessive of Rose. And he is also like, there's something in the way the later scenes are framed when she chooses Jack and they're so happy and she jumps back on the boat. It's her jumping back on the boat that triggers him to like chase them down with a gun. And again, I'm not yeah. saying that... Um, this isn't all rooted in possessive patriarchy. It, it 90% yeah. is. But just the way they frame it, the way James Cameron's chosen to frame the way Billy Zane looks and, and Billy Zane's choices as an actor to kind of yeah. really be like so triggered by not only her choosing Jack over Cal, but her choice to, I'd rather die on this boat with you. Like that that moment of like jumping back on the boat just feels very like, I'm wondering if there's more than just jealousy and possessiveness. It's like... I think is I think there is still hurt feelings. I totally know exactly what you mean, and I think two broad points about that. So the first one is that I think that actually in the world that Cal and Rose live in, it's Rose who, by social convention, is behaving incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So Cal, as much as his expectations are gross and patriarchal, they aren't weird for the time. You don't get the impression that everybody around him thinks he's a bastard. Yeah, it's kind of shown by the fact that the other rich man's wife is Rose's age. He's older and less good looking than Cal and possibly poorer for all we know. And his wife is Rose's age, already pregnant. So there's something about the fact that Cal's expectations, although repugnant, aren't unreasonable for the time. He has been given reason to have those expectations that aren't his fault, that are just the fault of the society at the time. And so there's a bit of like, oh, so this hasn't happened. He's trying to figure out why she isn't as pliant as these other young women. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if I, I don't know, carrot before stick, I guess, at yeah. this point. And then I think the bit where he runs after them with the gun, for me, was more humiliation. She's humiliated him. And that is it's like that old Margaret Atwood line, 
men are afraid that women will laugh at them women are afraid that men will kill them and yeah it's a very good scene to <laughs> demonstrate <laughs> yeah. that exact sentiment yeah. is that one of the worst things that you can do to men who live by this toxic masculinity who are being as harmed by the patriarchy as any of us is humiliate them and laugh at them yeah 100 percent. and i completely agree i think that is what's happening there and and it's the same as like when he tips the table over at breakfast that horrible that horrible scene where mm-hmm. he says you are my fiance, my wife in practice, if not yet by law, and you will honor me. Yeah. Like like that's like he's humiliated then too because she says something flippant. I can't remember what she says before. She says that like she's not an she, she says something like I'm not one of your men you can order in your mills or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, I'm your fi- that's she it. I'm your says, fiance. I yeah. yeah. She's basically like, I you don't tell me what to do. And he's just like, well, yeah, I do actually. Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's yeah. like all of that is yeah, it's all about his pride being bruised and and the idea that she's gallivanting around with this other man downstairs in, in the steerage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an extension of that humiliation. And and the humiliation, and as much as, again, we're not defending Cal, and we're not defending vi- the violence of men who are humiliated for that behaviour, but the humiliation that men are taught from such a young age to fear and feel such shame for is also a trauma, and that is valid feelings. Yeah. Does he love Rose? No. In his own way. In his own way. Uh, Again, I don't ask that question to in any way make excuses for him. Uh, I guess I'm just curious. I I think the way we see her with him and the way we see her with Jack, I don't think he knows her well enough to truly love her. He may think he does. But it seems like it's more a transaction, a transactional engagement than anything else. She's beautiful and young. Yeah. And has a good name. Yeah. She is the kind of person he should be expected to marry as an heir because he yep. needs a new heir. Yep, 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 yep. What do you think? You think? I think all of that is true, but I think I think there is something in there about, and I think it's just that open your heart to me, Rose line that makes me. I think he's desperate to know her, but mm. not in a way that's romantic, not in a way that Jack would get to know her. He is still so restricted by the confines of the patriarchy in which he operates. Mm-hmm. I think there is a part of Cal that does want to know her because I think that probably this marriage has been arranged and it's sort of been set up and there's a uh, you know a, a very of the moment like matchmaking type mm-hmm. thing that's taken place like introductions have happened they move in a certain societal network where it's like this introductions have been made in the hope that this marriage this match this good match would would be successful so I yeah, think there's probably a... Ruth's been in more of the conversations than Rose she's gone along to the meeting and she's said and done the right things more than yeah. the outfits so I feel and, like you know and she is clever and you get the impression he does quite like that she likes art and that she's she reads Freud yeah and I don't think Cal's very smart I don't think he's very worldly wise and like you know that's implied with the art conversation as well like our our tastes and art differ greatly and like you know, you know Picasso will amount to nothing mm-hmm. but he indulges he buys her all the art and like there's a, you know he does have this line where there's nothing I wouldn't give you like yeah there's yeah. A, there's something in there about like I believe Cal when he says that I believe he says there's nothing I wouldn't give you I'm not, once again, I am not making excuses. He is an unimaginable bastard, and I'm glad he put a pistol in his mouth. But um, hot take, because okay. <laughs> he he is awful. But there is something else at play in there that's not quite as binary for me. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean it's he's not a cartoon villain. No, because cartoon villains aren't interesting. Yeah, he is an interesting character, and you know he doesn't. He's not far off a cartoon villain. What I will say, I don't think there's enough of this. There's not enough. Mm-hmm 
of the open your heart to me rose stuff to dive into to prevent him from being a cartoon villain because there is he kind of he sort of skirts that line i think mainly because the movie's not about him or indeed we have to we have to get to the titanic part of things you know we have to get we have to keep going it's already quite a long film yeah (laughs) and we can't flesh out every single character exactly you'd like to but yeah no I, i completely get your point and i think that he definitely has feelings that are not just murderous rapey rage yeah <laughs> and that's you know yay for him yay for him <laughs> oh i have a fact yay um but just like a little contextual fact so after the dinner that jack has come to and she explains to him that the men will now retire to the drawing room for some cigars and brandy and he instead takes her to the sesh yes um, they cut back to the drawing room where they're having the brandy and cigars and uh, they're talking about the kind of beats i picked up in the conversation very quickly were sherman act rockefeller and supreme court and um, so cal's talking about well rockefeller already tried that with the sherman act of the supreme court or something like that so i looked up what that was just to get some context of the time and i essentially think it's in there just to display that they were in fact having a super boring conversation because it relates to a legal case in 1911 where the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil, which was the the oil company owned by the Rockefellers, was in breach of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, which is basically the, the act which made it so that you couldn't have a full monopoly on any kind of industry, which I found interesting because it was a court case which resulted in Standard Oil being broken up into like lots and lots of other smaller oil companies, two of which were Exxon and Mobile, which is now Exxon Mobile, which still exists to this day. Another company that has come under the scrutiny of this act in our lifetimes has been Microsoft ah. because of their, you know, Microsoft Word and like basically Microsoft Office and how basically every single office uses it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they wouldn't share their software with other software companies to let them have. So if you, I don't know if I, I couldn't afford Microsoft when I was doing something or other and my uni license for Office had expired. So I had Open Office. And if somebody sent you a Microsoft document that like you couldn't yeah. edit it. So I actually did my dissertation on the European version of this case because the EU fined Microsoft a bunch of money for that. So anyway, sorry. So that was, if, if you'd rather go to a party and dance around with Leonardo DiCaprio and down pints than listen to that, then I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you have just experienced a bit of that by listening to this podcast. That was another so if you need to now go have a pint of guinness and join the sesh feel free yeah um i like it it's such a boring fact you don't have to put it in i like it when you bring these things to the table the bodron uh the bodron the bodran bodran the bodran i think that's what it's called the celtic drum I thought it was Bodron. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever so, heard anyone say it. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm trying to hear it. At Bodron, is that right? Anyway, the Bodron it does things to me. Any Celtic instrument just triggers something primal in me. I don't know what it is, but I just start feeling things. Mostly the things I feel are encapsulated in my next note, which is "We're in it for the sesh, lads. Let's go." Yeah, and they do. It just looks like such a fun party, especially yeah. if people haven't been at a party for so long. <laughs> it's great. so great apart from the the little dance scene they have a dance off i just find that really unbearably cheesy they have that tap dancey river dance yeah moment. <laughs> i just don't get it 
Very confident. Uh, fuck off with the toe thing. Oh, that was the dancey thing, wasn't That's it? That's the, like, yeah, she's she's going on point. And I should have looked this up because I'm going to look it up right now because at the time I was like, I'm going on point without shoes. Is that a thing? So it's the ballet thing? Yeah, so ballet point shoes are designed specifically to encase your toes and support your foot when you're on point. And it's really, you're really not supposed to do it barefoot. Like, it shouldn't, I mean, I assume it is possible, but you're really not supposed to do it. I, and I was wondering, is this a class thing as well? Did they used to make rich girls who went to ballet class do a point without wearing the shoes? Or maybe know. she just didn't have her shoes on. She was a bit pissed and couldn't feel it too much. I mean, that's also true. Like, yeah, the, just there, is a, there is a genetic thing about drunk girls being able to, like, just turning themselves into rubber, maintaining a lot of uh, bruises and injuries. The men in the crow's nest arguably give themselves less time to avert the iceberg because they're too busy being homophobic. <laughs> I thought that um, was very funny. <laughs> yes. Because they're cold, they're up in the crow's nest, and one of them makes a joke about it. They see Jack and Rose having a cuddle, and they're like, they're keeping warm. One guy's like, no way yeah I'm like cuddling you it's like if and that's then, what it takes to stay warm i'll just be cold if it's all the same to you it's something like that and it's like well yes you will because you've missed the iceberg yeah and then we get bugger me and the ringing of the bell oh i have a little note here which kind of mm-hmm. jumps us back in the timeline but and it, it, maybe it's a fact you might know this and i think maybe a lot of people know this but in the scene where he's drawing rose as one of his french girls it's james cameron that's doing the drawing Mm. and uh james cameron is actually left-handed and he had to practice and learn to do it with his right so he didn't have to flip the camera angle to go from being his hand to jack's hand if that makes sense but yeah it's james cameron doing the drawings so there you go there we go fuck the scene where it sinks into all of the management then in caps this film is very good yeah. then in caps again oh fuck you cal oh i hate him and then oh this film is just very stressful and then the string quintet are sexy they are quite sexy, actually. Yeah, the lead so, guy, the, the violin player, he's... Just yeah. the whole attitude of... I, I don't know, maybe, again, there's a COVID line to be drawn from this, like, the ability of people to continue to make art in the face of such vast tragedy. It's beautiful. Yeah, and it's not just the making art thing. It's like there's something really admirable and heartbreaking about the ways in which everybody employed by the Titanic continues to do their job uh, mm. in the wake of what is going on. So the, the musicians continue to play, the first officers and the various people who work on the Titanic are doing everything in their power to try and like maintain order and get people in boats yeah. and do their jobs. Maximise the life salvaged. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's very stark. Like The movie deliberately shows the stark contrast between the way they talk to the first class passengers and the third class passengers because it goes very much from the not to worry not to worry madam not to worry sir blah 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 very gentle very like we'll get you back in your room as soon as possible and then it cuts to the steerage and they're like all right out of bed fucking like really traumatic like banging yeah. on the door and like yeah so there is the class dynamics are still at play even for the people who are employed on the titanic yeah. but there is something very uh despite that it's it's very noble and very heartbreaking to see these people try and continue to do their jobs right up until the end I think my notes really from this point are like just the series of things that just highlight how stressed I get from this point forward. The water coming in through the glass dome at the grand staircase and and what the music does at that point. The floating yeah, corpse. Yeah, because there's the bit, uh, the floating corpse, and the bit um, with Mr. Guggenheim, who's, like, sat in his chair drinking his brandy, and, like, we'll meet our deaths, like, gentlemen, quite calm and stately and gentlemanly, good for you, but then, like, the look in his face when the water's really approaching him, and he's absolutely terrified. Yeah, it's terror and shock as well. And, you know, this is, we've, we've touched on this already, and it's woven throughout the movie, this idea that these people just 
cannot compute that their status, their money, their position in life, it doesn't matter. When it comes right down to it, it doesn't fucking matter. And the idea as well that you can also intellectually accept that something's going to happen, but the reality of it, when it's actually right in front of your face, it's completely different. It's like, right, you've accepted that you you might not be at your granddaughter's wedding or something, but you've not actually quite worked out that you were about to die and that that is not going to be a pleasant experience for you. Yeah, Uh, there's a real-life survivor of the Titanic who I'm pretty sure, you know, the, the... the wee guy that uh, Rose and Jack keep seeing. He's next to him at the top of the boat. He's, he's, he's kind of all in white. Like, the implication is I think he's wearing chef's whites. So he's like... Do they talk to him? They don't really talk to him. They exchange a look with him. Like, Rose looks at him and they, they have... Like, oh, have when they're hanging off the back. When they're hanging off the back of the boat. Yeah, when they're hanging off the back of the So he's based on a real person called Charles Jockin who is right. the, the chief baker on the Titanic. And he's most famous for pretty much... Like his story in a night to remember, he he basically he did hang on to the brow of it until he basically just had to step off. Like he was hanging on to it, sinking until he basically just like went right down in the water. And he survived it. And he's most notable for surviving the longest time in the water, I think, before being pulled onto a collapsible. Um right, okay. but he's he's based on a real dude. He's not a character in the movie, except for that moment he has the exchange he he, he has with Rose. But the insertion of that particular actor to do that thing is based on this this real life survivor. So it's just a little Charles Jokin. You were coming in hard with the facts today. I told you I went down a rabbit hole. I got very obsessed with it this time last year. I wrote you a jingle. Did you? Yeah, I bought a kazoo and I was going to do a tune with it, but actually it sounded worse. So basically it goes... Louise has facts. Move over, Jacks. They'll stop you in your tracks. It's Louise's facts. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Chris has to Chris has to compose for that now, and we have to insert your your composition into the uh, into the podcast. I love it. Thank you, yeah. friends. I just thought you have so many facts, and I think just because I was, I I feel like I kind of cornered the facts at the start, and so I had, I in fact I had the, the monopoly, and this puts me in in breach of the Sherman Antitrust Act of eighteen ninety. So it also um, it, it also just up standard facts. It also puts a lot of pressure on you as well, actually. So you know, and yeah, this is like. <laughs> This is just all coming from the fact that I had a weird moment in the early part of COVID where I got really obsessed with the Titanic. So I love it. I'll enjoy my jingle. You've had this time. facts the last few weeks. Okay, okay. All right. You've had, you've, you have facts. <laughs> you have facts, lady. All right, cool. I'll own it. I'll take ownership of my facts. Yeah. That probably brings us onto that fucking door. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. That was actually my the, the note that's immediately next year is this, oh, the fucking door. Like, it's weird because our, our, like, narratives are, like, way off all the way down. Like, our notes are not, <laughs> the bit of the film is not next to each other. And then, it basically, it's just, like, immediately, fucking door. Somebody has done an experiment on this. Yeah, wasn't it, like, Mythbusters or something? <laughs> yeah. I think they found that he couldn't have. And then the Smithsonian rebutted and said that, he could have because he tries to get onto the door yeah and, and it's, it, tips. it tips over yeah so he's just like right fuck, no you just stay on it so i suppose james cameron's argument is that the problem wasn't the space on the raft but his buoyancy and then 
Mythbusters said... Mythbusters appear to be of the opinion that it was possible. Yeah, they said if Rose had been less busy crying and more busy thinking, she could have tied her life jacket to the bottom of the plank and kept them both afloat. I think that's very it's, reductive. That also is laced um, with misogyny. Yes. Is that it? Is that it, Smithsonian Mag? Well, James Cameron has apparently debunked it. And he says, look, it's very, very simple. You read page 147 of the script and it says Jack gets off the board and gives his place to her so that she could survive. It's that simple. You could do all the post-analysis you want, he said when asked about the infamous door scene. And he goes on to say, so you're talking about the Mythbusters episode, right, where they sort of pop the myth. Okay, so let's really play that out. You're Jack. You're in water that's 28 degrees. Your brain is starting to get hypothermia. Mythbusters asks you to now go and take off your life vest take hers off, swim underneath this thing, attach it in some way that won't just wash out two minutes later, which means you're underwater tying this thing on in 28 degrees water, and that's going to take you five to ten minutes. So by the time you come back up, you're already dead. So that wouldn't work. His best choice was to keep his upper body out of the water and hope to get pulled out by a boat or something before he died. They're fun guys, and I love doing that show, but they're full of shit. (laughs) I think that's really quite well said. I think that's fair. And, and also, the way people talk about the door, they talk about it as if, like, Rose was preventing Jack from being on the door. They were, it was all yeah. there, like, Rose let Jack on the door. Like, she is not barring him from being on the door. They both try and get the door. He can't get on it. He lets her be on it because his her survival is the most important thing to him. And he stays in the water hoping that the boats will come back sooner than they do. It is not the stupidest mistake anybody makes in this film. No. And, uh, and it didn't happen in real life. The exactly. stupid mistakes that led to everybody dying happened. Yeah. But, you know, we're we're pushing Jack's understanding of survival in ship sinking situations. <laughs> we're already pushing it when he's like, oh, because like, there's a point when they're on the bow of the ship and he says that when the boat, when the, sorry, dad, when the ship goes into the water, it's going to suck us down. So you need to kick with your legs and come up like, I don't know how he knew that. He's been ice fishing. Some, something to do with that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but he understands something about the way that gravity and objects work in water. Yeah. And, and that's fine. I don't want, I have no questioning of that. I believe Jack knows that. He's a smart guy. Fine. Yeah. He's we worked not, that out. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to, it doesn't matter if they could have. If everything had been done properly, everybody could have survived this. If they'd had enough lifeboats, if they had done a disaster drill, Mm -hmm. if they'd been less complacent, there were were various interventions that could have happened that meant that the loss of life was exactly it's and you know i think we should be far more focused on why they didn't fill the lifeboats because as mr andrews said they were tested in belfast with the weight of 70 men now fill those lifeboats fill them now it's Yeah. yeah it's like this is these are the bigger debates we should be having and as james cameron has said it's never really been a debate it's just stupid yeah it's the bit for me that really just throws me into fits of sobs like racking fits of sobs is as because also the other thing that's up for debate that is apparently up for debate is whether or not old rose dies on the boat dies in their sleep apparently this is up for debate but for me it feels like it's really clear cut because it's like it's pretty clear yeah because we go back to the titanic um, with her and everyone's there and that's the bit that just and absolutely everybody who's on me. it is dead yeah yeah exactly and yeah. he's been waiting for her he's been waiting at the top of the grand staircase at the clock and honestly it absolutely destroys me 
I'm getting a bit. It's lovely, and everybody's happy to see her. Mr. Andrews is there, and Fabrizio is there, Trudy's there. Mm-hmm. It's just too much. Yeah, it's lovely. And I don't care. I don't care. Don't at us with any crap about being cheesy, or I, we don't want to hear it, Yeah, frankly. It's still, like, like, it's literally one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Like, mm-hmm. people love it. There's a reason for that. Get over yourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it's very um, good. And, like, yeah, as Louise said, like, even if the love story isn't your bag, it's not your jam, remove that from the film and you still have a really touching, arguably the saddest bits are not the Jack and Rose bits. No, they're really not. <laughs> um, um, the bit as well where um, Mr. Andrews is just waiting to die. Oh yeah, honourable mention for Mr. Andrews. I can't believe we made such a big deal about Victor Garber and the impact he had yeah. on me, particularly as Mr. Andrews. Mm. And we didn't even talk about Mr. Andrews' moment. Ugh. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't build you a better ship, Rose. It's Ugh. just... Yeah, and he's there with his brandy and he's fixing the clock. And <sighs> Yeah, it was a bit like where he kind of fixes the clock and then he's like leaning forward and leaning on the thing. And then you see the drinks start to come off. But yeah. it's like, so it's actually, he's kind of like, he's leaning against it in a melancholy way, but he's also keeping its balance because yeah. the ship is tipping back. And it's, it's a like, lot. Oh, his absolute self-loathing the second it happens is just... Yeah. I think captain's the same. The captain and Mr. Andrews go on a similar journey, uh, you know, in terms of their understanding of what what this means, and like they they absorb the the impact and the loss of life and what's about to happen pretty much right away because mm-hmm. they know they know what all this means, and they know that they they're quite in tune with what their part in it is. Yeah, very much so, and very very absorbed with well, this is what I did that. Yeah, and you know he does moment. make the point when when Rose does her safety audit of the of the lifeboats, he does he does kind of say, and he says that before there's any disaster, he says I was overruled on the lifeboats, but he also knows that he could have, I'm sure he knows he could have fought harder. Yeah, and it's just that I guess it's that principle of people going down with the ship, which yeah, I don't know, it's not a good situation to be in. Absolutely. Mr. Andrews and the captain are the two that just know right away because it's like uh, the captain has that line where he says to Ismay, well, well, it looks like you're going to get your headline, yeah, uh, Mr. Ismay, because he knows from the moment it's communicated to him by Mr. Andrews that the scale mm-hmm. to which the damage has been done, these two accept what's going on. And from there on, it's like inevitable tragedy. The bit where the captain goes into his office, I don't know, the, the bridge, it's on the bridge. Uh, I don't um, know what you call that. Somebody who knows about ships yeah, I'm just assuming it's the bridge because I think that's what it would be on the Enterprise. It does the steering and all that stuff. I think it's the bridge. He goes into the bridge with his wee drink or his wee cup of tea or whatever he's got, and the water builds onto the windows so much that eventually just like flies through and gets him. Mm-hmm. Which was real in the part I read that that was the most frightened that that actor's ever been in his life. Yeah, I can imagine. Valid. Yeah, it's totally valid. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. No, CGI that, please. Yes, please. <laughs> I mean, is it worth mentioning? I know it says we should never speak of it, but maybe we have to speak of the alternate ending because there I is one. I think we one. should speak about the alternate ending and you can find it on the YouTube. Yeah, we could probably bang that in the show notes as well just to make sure everybody else has suffered the way we have suffered. <laughs> Misery loves company, after all. Yeah, so bad. Oh, it's truly, truly atrocious. And, you know, when I first found it, part of me was like, everybody involved in this film, from James Cameron down, were all so uncertain about the possibility of the, the, the current ending as we see it, the released ending, that you got to the point where you shot this. 
because Bill Paxton's there, uh, Gloria Stewart's there, everyone's there. Like you shot this, so you were serious enough about this as a possible ending that you got as far as it bringing it into existence. And I'm yeah. just like, oh no, it's truly awful. It is awful. And is is it? Do you think they did it in case? Because old Rose doesn't die in the alternate ending, does she? It's just that they... Not as far as we can tell, no. Not as far as we can tell. So if that's just it. Whereas basically, like, they know that she's thrown the yeah. thing off. And I guess also it's like, what they don't know can't hurt them. But in yeah. the alternate one, Bill Paxton gets to accept it and have a good laugh. Yeah. And, and a little dance with with uh, old Rose's oh, good-looking God. granddaughter. God. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really heinous. Um, it's... it's awful it's bad that's probably all we have to say on that really isn't it <laughs> yeah. it's just bad i feel like we should end with something a bit this hasn't been our funniest podcast no it's not been funny but then like i don't really know how we could have possibly made this funny no i don't think it would have been right to I suppose um, no i suppose i don't know how to end this one actually this one's a tough one the ending of the film the current ending of the film although it's like is is very sad and that we are we are in bits it's sort of happy as well so but it's sort of got this kind of it's not happy ending but like the panning over the the photo frames and we get mm-hmm. we get a snapshot of the life that rose did lead and then yeah. she ends up back you know the implication being that she she dies in her sleep and she ends up back on the titanic with jack it is mm-hmm. sort of like i mean how else do you end a movie like this like i suppose that is and that's what he says to her when um She's very cold on the door and he tells her about how she's going to live a full life and die an old woman in her sleep. Yeah. And and she does. And that actually is, you know, what if one has to die, which one does? Yeah. Um, what really could you ask for? More than having, you know, having a great life, having done everything you wanted to do and dying very old, not having a protracted, long, painful illness. Yeah. in your bed with the people like her you know having seen her granddaughter that day who she clearly loves the most yeah um, is I mean I think we were trying to make that happy and I've just made it incredibly maudlin but um <laughs> that is a dream you know that's yeah that's the ideal isn't it told. yeah yeah and she's finally told her story mm-hmm. she shared it she's, she's mm-hmm. relived it she's like maybe cleansed a little bit got rid of some of that trauma remember yeah. Jack and and in remembering Jack remembering that he's the reason that she's there at all in many ways yeah because she's had the life she's had yeah because there's this moment where she's about to let the the lifeboat that comes back she's about to let it go and then she remembers what Jack said to her what the promise mm-hmm. that she made to him which is that she wouldn't let go she wouldn't let go and she promised him in that moment as well she would live the life that she that she was never going to get with cal like that's the point if she if she just dies there on on the the door with jack then what was it all for the possibility of of agency and life and living a life to the fullest was introduced to her by jack so if she doesn't go do that she's not honoring his memory yeah and also and he has and he has been in the water so that she can be on the door and as a result she's still exactly. alive so she has a responsibility to stay that way Absolutely. or go down swinging yeah so the ultimate message of make each day count comes right back around so do wear that your listeners mask. <laughs> wear your mask wash your hands take your vaccine take your vaccine yeah well done yeah <laughs> to make each day count well said jack yeah yeah to making it count Thank you.
That was I'll Have What She's Podcasting. Thanks to Chris Gorman for the edit and the sound design. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's Podcasting. If you liked this, you might also enjoy our sister podcast, Persistent and Nasty, which is all about amplifying marginalised voices in film and theatre. Thanks for listening and see you next time.